We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Truth Perspective, our first flagship voyage on the new SOT radio network location. Yay. Oh, just wait. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I hope, hope, well, looks like we are sounding perfect. That's what the chatters are saying. So it's great. Yeah. Good to be here. It is March 12th, and in the studio today... We have sought editors and co-hosts, Elon Martin. Hello, everyone. Shane Lachance. Hello, everybody. Corey Schink. Hello. And I am Harrison Cayley. And we'll be, we will be joined a bit later by Joe and Neil, hopefully from behind the headlines. Our topic today is radicalization. Now, this is something I've, or we, I think, have been wanting to talk about for a while. We've t- mentioned, you know, various aspects of it on the show before, but we thought we'd dedicate an entire show to it, because it is a very interesting topic, I think, lots of different angles uh, from which to approach it. And I guess just to start out, we're going to talk about radicals and radicalization, because that's a term that we hear a lot in the news today, about the dangers of radicalization, homegrown radicalization, identifying radicals and radicalized individuals, etc., etc., and the first thing that struck me about this kind of new discourse on radicals is just kind of how out of step it is from how I'd considered or thought about radicals previously. And not just that, but from like from before I was even born. Um, I worked in a bookstore for years, so one of the books that was kind of uh, we'd always put on, on display because it looked cool and because we sold a few copies was... Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. So this was a book written in 1971 um, by Saul Alinsky, and he was kind of a a radical. He was a, a community organizer. I'm just going to read something from the description of this book from Wikipedia. Um, so it was published shortly before his death, and Alinsky's goal for Rules for Radicals was to create a guide for future community organizers to use in uniting low-income communities. To, to use in uniting low-income communities, or have-nots. So this was in order to empower them to gain social, political, legal, and economic equality by challenging the current agencies that promoted their inequality. So he compiled like the lessons he'd learned from his personal experiences in community organization um, that spanned the years 1939 to 1971. So basically like his, his life lessons, the things he learned about um, bringing you know, equality to the people that do not have it, to the low classes. And, um, yeah, so from then, so that was, that was, that's what, that's what a radical was in 1971. Well, you know, even, um, you know, I think the term, you know, really has changed a lot. Um, you know, even uh, about 10 years ago or so I was, uh, I was involved in, uh, some community organizing and, um, you know, anti-war efforts and, yeah, and there are a lot of different 
uh, people from you know different organizations that would come together, and uh, they, they, I think, they probably uh, some maybe been influenced by by Saul. And you know, one of the questions I remember being asked was, "So how did you become radicalized?" You know, and and you know, this isn't this was in the sense of you know seeing uh, seeing the world you know more objectively and. Um, and, and wanting to, you know, is, is put in terms of being an activist, mm -hmm. I think. So, so this, this newer term in, in terms of, um, you know, uh, Islamic radicalization or, you know, this, this fundamental view is, is, is a, is a change. Mm -hmm. Well, going by the old definition I think um, people would be surprised to learn how many radicals there are out there. They might, you know, become so terrified that they can't even step out of their homes every day to get the groceries because, um, you know, I have on good authority that even uh, Hillary Clinton's a radical. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, this was breaking news, um, not recently, but <laughs> it was breaking news when it came out, but Hillary Clinton... Uh, there were newly discovered letters between Hillary Clinton and Saul Alinsky. And were, they, were, they, were these letters in leaked emails? Um, no, unfortunately. But uh, but so apparently, you know, Clinton, Hillary Clinton was a big fan of of Alinsky. And um, oh, just as a as a side note, Alinsky dedicated the book to Lucifer, <laughs> <laughs> and the book became a handbook for racial agitators and left wing political. Problem causers. This is according to the Political Insider. This is where I'm reading this, and um, so David Horowitz <clears throat> uh, kind of wrote on this story, and he said that he described Alinsky as a practical theorist for progressives who had supported the communist cause to regroup after the fall of the Berlin Wall and mount a new assault on the capitalist system. Um, and it was Al Alinsky who t who wove the inquit relativism of the post-communist left into a coherent whole and helped it form the coalition of communists, anarchists, liberals, democrats, black racialists, and radical justice activists. And so apparently Clinton met with Alinsky several times, 1968, while she was writing her thesis at um, Wellesley College about, the th about his theory of community organizing. And so she supported his philosophy for years, um, even after she entered Yale Law School. And, um, the, yeah, the, so it was the Washington Free Beacon show that obtained the letters between them. Um, and you can search for them and read them if you want. But I just want to, I just think it's funny that um, Saul Alinsky um, was a, ra a radical, wrote a book for radicals. People like Hillary Clinton considered themselves radicals. And, you know, probably at some of the meetings that uh, were going on at the time, like even before you were involved in this kind of stuff, Shane, they'd probably ask the same questions, like, oh, when did you become radicalized, man? It's like, uh, <laughs> and it's like, so <laughs> radicalization was kind of this, just this normal thing. And if you think about it in the terms that, like, that I read from that description of Alinsky's book, um, radicalism sounds like a, a pretty decent thing, like kind of the, the only um, reasonable perspective that a person can take in the world if they're not a money-grubbing, oligarchic, you know, Plutocrat. Like Hillary Clinton. Like Hillary Clinton, <laughs> exactly. And, and just to comment on Hillary Clinton's um, liking of, uh, of Alinsky's work, I mean, it just seems like she's one of these, you know, opportunists who will ride the wave of whatever political fervor seems the most trendy and, and interesting and, and uh, relevant at the moment. 
uh, as we know, in her heart, she was never much of a, a radical. No. Um, and because uh, she has no heart, she has, that that would explain part of it, I think. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, just uh, just she just kind of appropriates the most um, uh, popular and powerful uh, seeming uh, movement at the moment. You know, I think she even joined uh, C Street. You know, a bunch of uh, kind of right wing. Christian radicals, uh, radicals. You can call them that in the in the nineties and two thousands. You know, she would go to their prayer groups and uh, and and you know that was the big thing at the time and and the major force behind uh, the military and and the war on terror for a little while. Well, I think in a in a certain sense, we'll get into this. I think in the latter part of the show, but I think Hillary Clinton is probably a textbook case study of a real radical. In the in the way that we'll be kind of getting into it, because um, well, biked like in order to get to that, the we'll look at the the way the word is used now. So now, radicals. If you say that word, you think that well, it's it's talked about in the context of Islamic extremism, radical Islam, um, terrorist organizations, these kind of extremist um, Islamic groups. And even that in itself is not a very, um, well, well, as we'll see, it's not a very good description of, um, or word to use for the phenomenon that they're trying to describe. But in essence, it gets down to some kind of nasty individuals of which, you know, Hillary Clinton is right up there with them. But um, before we move on, I just want to say we do have Joe and Neil with us today. So, guys, are you there? Hi. I don't know. Hey. You are, and you sound great. Oh, God. <laughs> hey, guys. What's going on, Shane and Harrison? And who else on the land? And, and Corey. Hey. It. Hello. Hi. We're, we're being radical today. A la snack bar. A la, a la <laughs> snack bar. Exactly. That, that, that's a more appropriate, actually, term, because, you know, they were all, all the jihadis in Syria were mad for the Snickers bars. I didn't they, know that. They were being they were being by Snickers, yeah. And, and apparently, Nutella, apparently, and Nutella, and apparently they had to uh, they had to take when ISIS when Russia Russia intervened and started, um, you know, seriously degrading the um, the ISIS uh, funding uh, abilities. They uh, they had to take cutbacks, and one of the first things to go was Snickers bars. And I, that's, that was in the news. I'm not joking. That was. Uh, they had to cut back on candy, and because um, that was what was fueling them. Yeah. So it was Allahu Allahu snack bar. So they went through withdrawals, <laughs> and that made them very angry because the yeah. yeah and they, they had a, they sent out appeals for shipments of Nutella. I don't know if you have that in the states. It's a kind yep. of a chocolate paste here, mm-hmm. very popular in Europe, uh, because of course many or some thirty thousand, by some estimates, of these guys are young Europeans. From European slums, they're not actually Muslims, really. Mm-hmm. Their parents ditched Islam pretty much yeah. forty years ago, so they're just, they're they're just doing it for the lols. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so and they have a strong upbringing draw. with uh, with Nutella, and that's what yeah. drives oh, them. Oh yeah, plastic fats. I think that we can add it's Nutella to, to the list of yeah. radicalizing agents. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, anyway, don't let us interrupt. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, we were just giving a kind of a short introduction on just how far the term radicalization has come over the decades, whereas like in the 70s, it was considered a, a positive thing uh, of social activism and even Hillary Clinton associated with guys like Saul Alinsky. And, but now it's kind of changed. And, you know, I was just saying it nowadays you think of Muslim extremists or Muslim radicals. And um, there's, there's been a, there have been a few people who've written, um, kind of done research and tried to figure out the, the kind of profile of the type of people that join extremist groups, um, some specifically Islamic, and kind of the process that individuals go through when they, when they join a new group like this. And I was reading some of this stuff, and the thing, one of the things that struck me is that the, the description of what people go on or go through, like the, the experiences they have to lead them um, to join a group like that, is it, it's pretty um, not necessarily vague because there are, there are some specific details in there, but um, it's very open-ended in the sense that it can describe kind of a lot of different phenomena. So, for example, they might describe a person who has who goes through um, a crisis. There's usually a crisis stage that someone goes through, where um, kind of their their past values, their past worldview gets thrown into question, and it kind of like wipes the slate clean for for a new worldview to enter in. And of course, we can see descriptions of that, like in the the kind of cult deprogramming literature. And we've talked about some of those groups on the shows in the past like in Scientology or even like um, kind of fundamentalist Christian groups or any kind of religious group. and or But it also comes back to um, the discussions that we had about positive disintegration because um, that's kind of the process that happens um, whenever you whenever someone runs into, a, you know, when, when they're um, a situation where their worldview gets thrown into question. And the, what, what's open-ended about this description of radicalization is that it can go in any kind of, or in many different directions. It can be a positive thing or a negative thing. You can be radicalized in a sense where your your eyes are opened up to some kind of social social injustice, and you change your life, you change your activity, the things you do every day in order to, in a, in a new direction. And it may be supporting some kind of social cause or, you know, joining a political action group or, or whatever, or a new religion or an old religion or leaving a religion. <coughs> So, like, the description is kind of, um, it can apply to so many different situations um, for these, for, for how people just join groups in general and new groups and, and change the way that they live their lives. Well, the, the word, you know, radical, you know, it, it doesn't seem like the, you know, the best word, even, you know, for its original use, because, you know, it's, it's, it was this reaction to a, a sick society and, you know, radicalization, you know, uh, when it was originally used seems more like, you know, learning to be a decent human being. Well, I think that's a, that's a good point, Shane, because, you know, if your government is essentially pathological and you are just a, a normal human being, you can, your reactions could be seen as pretty radical in that sense. And when you look at the, you know, look through the literature, it seems like what they're saying when they say radical is that you're opposed to the mainstream view on things. So mm -hmm. you could believe in UFOs, you could join a religious movement, you could do things that, but if they're different from what's officially accepted, then you're radical. And the radicalization process, as they define it, is how violent you're willing to be in term, in the pursuits of your goals. Well, there's, it's not just, 
Muslim extremism because you just reminded me of the the different articles and and kind of statements that come out of the U.S. government on how to identify possibly radicalized individuals, right? And the things they include on the list are anything from like being a constitutionalist to um, to prepping, um, reading conspiracy theory books, or you know stuff like that. So it's it that just again goes to show what a what an empty term the word is and how it doesn't really have any kind of meaning or explanatory value because it just applies to so many different things. I mean, you could, so what all, all preppers are radicalized, all conspiracy theorists are radicalized, you know, constitutionalists are radicalized. So, you know, Americans that think that, that America should be judged or ruled by the rule of law are, are radicals. So pretty much anyone who has any kind of political awareness is a radical, I guess. And like what you said, Harrison, is that if they have a, some sort of a grievance against the way things are, you know, they've, take, they've taken something personally, uh, especially, you know, when you look in, at Iraq and you see, I mean, uh, you know, the insurgency and people who are, quote unquote, radicalized because their entire country has been deliberately destroyed. You know, they've seen family members, they've heard rumors about people being, you know, taken into these this giant, massive uh prison complex and tortured, you know, this radicalizes people, you know, in, in, uh, you know, in, in their society, they have these personal grievances or group grievances. But like you say here, that is not what is going on when you look at, you know, these wild jihadis who just join groups so they can go around cutting people's heads off. Obviously, you know, this is not a normal human reaction to a, a personal, a personal grievance. So, like, it doesn't happen. It's just, it's so vague. It doesn't, it doesn't explain what's going on. And it's too bad that, you know, the literature continues to, to pour out because what that does by, you know, having such a blanket term, it just feeds right into the hands of the perpetrators of the violence and the grievances that it gives them a tool to say, okay, so anybody who seems a little, who's different from the power structure could be a radical. And if they're a radical, then goodness, what's the difference between them and ISIS jihadis, you know? Well, one of the ways that uh, the U.S. government in particular tried to introduce uh, this new definition of, of radicalization uh, was with a the Violent Radicalization and Homegrown Terrorism Prevention Act of 2007, um, which was introduced by Representative Jane Harmon. And uh, the stated purpose was to deal with homegrown terrorism and violent radicalization, uh, end quote. Um, and what she wanted to do, and she had a bunch of co-signers to do this, which was to establish a national commission uh, or a center for study cooperating with other nations that would all kind of get together and look at uh, what the causes of radicalization were. Um, and there was significant backlash about this. You had the ACLU and uh, congressmen like Dennis Kucinich, and uh, a whole bunch of other people who came out and said, well, this is really kind of uh, a new thought police piece of legislation. If you're even thinking about this stuff, if you're writing about any kind of uh, progressive so-called anti-government uh, ideas, then you will be termed a radical and lumped in with anyone who uh, may have really violent intentions towards people. And, and the bill sort of covers that, too. You know, it, it says ostensibly that it's against people who are 
planning to um, uh, commit violent acts against the government or segments of the population, which is all good and well enough, except that half the time these people are uh, funded or, or set up by the FBI. You know, the radicals are manufactured. Uh, they're, not, they're not real. Um, so uh, the bill was never passed. <laughs> And um, and you had all sorts of folks uh, coming out and saying that uh, it provided a, a basis for subjective interpretation of dissident speech. Uh, they also had comments about it to say that the bill doesn't specifically define what an extremist belief is. It is entirely up to the interpretation of the government. Essentially, they have defined violent radicalization as thought crime. So... Um, you know, from from the 1970s, 60s idea of a progressive social movement to uh, to the realm of just thinking about how things should be better and different is where we are right now. Well, you there, there's reference in that to to violent extremism, right? And, and so there's the the association between radicalization and violence. Mm-hmm. Now. One of the examples that comes to my mind, you know, when thinking about this whole process of how a person kind of changes their worldview in order to, be- to become violent, um, one of the causes that we mentioned so far is like a, a grievance, like a personal or a group grievance. And if you look at, for example, the um, the militias in East Ukraine, um, in a certain sense, they're they've been radicalized. But what you know, when you look at that situation, what do you really learn? Well, you learned that, well, why, did, how did, why and how did they become radicalized? Well, there was a coup d'etat in their country. Um, this basically extremely right-wing group took over and was planning to take away their rights, their rights to language, and basically ruin their part of the country. And so they said no, and the, and the Kiev sent over tanks and, and um, you know, their own army, and so they formed these militias to defend their land and their, their families and themselves. And so they essentially took up arms. They totally changed their lives as they were until that point. I mean, a lot of these guys were miners and just people working in stores uh, with regular jobs. And they formed this militia, and they've been doing it for like two years now. And so there's a there's an aspect. Uh, well, I think just that example shows that again that this it's it's really hard to come up with a kind of actual definition that has any kind of um, you know, explanatory power for what this what this phenomenon actually is, because they are essentially a resistance movement, and people, at least all over, I think people all over the world, plan or seem to approve of certain resistance movements. At least they do when they're a part of one, because they see the reason for it, and that's why they join it in the first place, and and take up arms if they if they're in that in a situation where they they see that as necessary. And you could, I mean, the United States, according to all its official history, was founded by radicals. And um, so, again, it's just the, 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 I think the, the kind of conclusion or the take-home point from just this discussion so far is that the, the very word itself, radicalization, is, is meaningless. And it doesn't say anything about the, the groups that are, that are being targeted or that are trying to be identified with this term. And that's probably deliberate, too, because like you said, Ilan, it's the perfect vehicle for thought crime and... Um, the, when the definition is so open-ended, it can then be applied to anyone. Um, but in this case, we do have like specific groups where it is being applied, and and that is Muslim groups. 
So I thought maybe we can move on into like that example. So um, I know Joe's got some stuff that he's just itching to share with us, but I wanted I wanted to know a bit about the history of this. Like, um, how'd you know that? Because um, I'm reading your mind right now and got a direct link. <laughs> That's one of the it's it's one of the new features on the radio.sat.net. We've got the the telepathic mind link reader set up. No, it's all that in the program. Will. Yeah. That's a mind reading app. Yeah. I didn't uh I didn't sign up to that actually, so uh, <laughs> I have to talk to talk to the programmer. Um, okay. But yeah, so how did this thing start? Like where 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 do we look for like the origins of like radical Muslims? I have a suggestion. Okay. Um but remove the word remove radical, at least initially. Just okay. deal with Islam, period. Um, in the late 19th century, uh, the British were in charge of the world, and they made a big effort to effectively, well, I don't know if they actually set out to do this, but I think they held a big role in effectively shaping Islam as we know it today. I know that sounds, whoa, wait a minute, Islam goes back 2,000 years. It does, yes, but there's actually... Um, another religion which had pretty much the same thing done to it during the same time period, and that's Judaism. Mm -hmm. um, Zionism is a creation of the late 19th century, and I think there's quite a bit of evidence to suggest the same was the case for what we know as Islam. And I think its roots um, could go to uh, the biggest headache for the British at the time, which was India. They knew they had to leave India because they couldn't afford to keep managing it on site. Um, it took another 70, 80 years before it came to fruition, but they put in motion a plan to create an Islamic state. They invented one. They called it Pakistan. Um, that was being thought up and sussed out in the late 19th century. And Pakistan is a completely fictitious creation. There, are, there were, of course, a lot of people there who were Muslim, um, but to actually make it so, they had to boot out a lot of Hindu people and transport Muslims from what we now know today as India into the newly created territory. Um, and from there, right through the 20th century, and then in the transition of power over to the United States as hegemon, there's a consistent pattern of um, not necessarily creating and completely controlling Islam as practiced, but you can't help but notice the pattern. So Saudi Arabia becomes the dominant um, authority on Islam, what it means to be a practicing Muslim and so on. Um, and that comes after the fact that Saudi Arabia was chosen as the political unit for Western imperial control of the Middle East. So whether or not they thought it all through and says, oh, okay, we're going to control Islam via Saudi Arabia, or simply they made a political decision to go with Saudi Arabia as their local garrison, if you like, um, there's a pattern there of the religion effectively as a whole um, self-selecting for a particular variant of the religion that's brought what we know today as this really crazy stuff um, that's still only you know espoused by a tiny minority of, of Muslims today but nevertheless it's been a carefully cultivated um, Islam in quotes and we can now call it radical Islam over the last one and a half centuries. That's the origin. 
Okay, so we've had this over 100 years of the development of this kind of marriage of a certain variety of Islam and political structures in the Middle East. And mm -hmm. how does that, uh, and so that, that has become, in a sense, what we see today as, as radical Islam. Was there a, like what we'd call, ra what in the news, let's say you're reading a report today and you, you hear about radical Islamists. What relation do, would those people today have to, you know, what was going on a hundred years ago? Or was there, what happened in between that time um, to get basically from then to now? Could you be more oh. specific in your question? Well, so what were, did what we think of as a radical Muslim extremist exist like a hundred years ago? Yes, and they were usually jailed because everyone mm -hmm. knew they were nuts. Okay. Well, the, the, but they didn't exist in the sense that, <clears throat> in, in the sense or to the extent or to the scope or in the scope that they, 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 they exist today, obviously. So basically no is the answer in, the, in that radical Islam as people believe it or see it or believe it to, to exist today did not exist 100 years ago, no. Mm -hmm. Well, what, I, what uh, comes to mind for me is, like I, I think again to the, to the East Ukrainians and how they basically formed a, like a resistance movement, and they are called terrorists by the government in Kiev. And mm. it reminds me of the Palestinians <sighs> who basically did the same thing, formed a resistance movement, and who are still called <coughs> collectively terrorists in the Israeli and Western media. Mm. And, that, and so, well, that's very common. That's a that's a story or a, a tactic that's as old as history. I mean, any state power that uh, doesn't like what um, a group of people either in its own ter territory or in a, a territory in which it's interested are doing if they don't like what such a group is doing if, the, if that group or if, if more to the point if that group doesn't like what the state is doing and tries to take some action to adre um, address the, the, the issue then yeah they're called all sorts of names you know they're I mean terrorism is just it's just one um, I think terrorism well, terrorism as a term has been around for a long time, but it's really taken hold today because of the ability, I mean, in our technological age, the ability for people who have issues with a state, for example, um, have, have much greater access to to weapons and, and can, you know, can take up uh, arms in defense of their cause or to further their cause. Um, you know, I mean, other terms would have been used um, maybe a long time ago, a hundred years ago or more, by the British in, uh, in, in their colonies in responding to um, local people in local people in, in British colonies who were effectively under occupation, uh, the British would have just used all sorts of pejorative and uh, demeaning terms, you know, referring to them as baboons or monkeys or animals or fuzzy apes, that kind of thing, you know, just to demean them in some way. Um, in in the eyes of the the, the people back home, uh, but terrorism today has taken off. I think more so as as the as the term as the the key or the most popular defining term uh, that is used by any state <clears throat> to demonize any people who are, are in some way a threat to the state, because those people can uh, I think yeah. have greater access to weapons and therefore in theory could uh, could mount an armed. Uh, you know, campaign against state occupation. And of course, that very often involves attacking, you know, 
the infrastructure of the of, of the colonizing state, like um, you know, British owned and at the time British owned or American owned hotels or whatever, any infrastructure owned or seen to be owned by the the occupying power is attacked, and then that can very easily be spun into the idea of terrorism, which is um, you know terrorizing ordinary people. Of course, it's all lies and nonsense, and you never get the the real truth. But um, but I mean, going back to if you want to go back to the origin of radical Islam, you probably go back to uh, as we know today. You probably go back to the beginning of the of the twentieth century. <clears throat> around uh, the time of the First World War and just after the First World War, uh, when after the fall of the Ottoman Empire and the grab, or the, the, the restructuring of the Middle East and by, by uh, the imperial powers uh, and the different um, uprisings that were that happened as a result of that where local Arabs in the Middle East wanted, uh, were getting a, a raw deal by these Western powers and arbitrarily growing uh, um, uh, boundaries are redrawing the map of <clears throat> the Middle East and, and effectively treating them as second-class citizens. And they, um, there were several revolts by Arabs in the Middle East at that time, and they were uh, they were put down. I mean, one of the uh, one of the famous ones that maybe not a lot of people know about, but is the first use of chemical weapons was by uh, was under the orders of Winston Churchill in uh, 1920, 1920, I think, uh, in the area of Palestine, where he ordered the British uh, Air Force, the fledgling British Air Force at the time, uh, to drop chemical weapons on, on the Arabs for revolting against uh, British occupation and uh, favoritism uh, to, to, you know, at the time it was the uh, Jewish settlers had, had begun to move in then, even in the, in the 1920s, and, and just the general occupation and the way they were handling the control of, of the Middle East time was caused these these rebellions and uprisings and they were they were gassed so um or they used, they used chemical weapons were used against them so i mean obviously at that time those muslims in the middle east who were not in any way radical as as, as they're under as that's understood to be, to be today mm-hmm. uh they would they would probably at the time would have been called radical muslims or terrorists etc etc mm-hmm um, so radical, just the term radical, like you said, Harrison, is, is, has no meaning if you look at it. Obviously, it's just a, a word that means someone who, you know, is a bit crazy, you know, but you never explore <clears throat> why they might be a bit crazy. You know, people are allowed to get crazy now and again if they're being treated badly. So um, in and of itself, being radical uh, is not a bad thing, depending on, on what you're being radical about. If you're radical against racism, for example, uh, if you're a radical anti-racist, is that a bad thing? Nobody likes racism, right? right so, <laughs> well, what's kind of interesting about that uh, piece of legislation that we were talking about just a few minutes ago is how it lumps in uh, the term radicalization with terrorism. Uh, you know, where you're not really asked to differentiate what might be a, a progressive, uh, pro-social movement with um, with this. Uh, from a reactionary, violent, uh, irrational, um, other type of movement. Um, like NATO. <laughs> there you go. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the words that are being used, um, you know, these are ideas, these are that have been appropriated to basically control the perception <coughs> of, of uh, a lot of people in the world. Mm-hmm. 
uh, who wouldn't otherwise be questioning uh, what it is they're being told. Uh, oh, you know, that person's a radical. So, you know, if we, insofar as we even have any radicals today that are, that are uh, in the sense that Saul Alinsky meant them to be, uh, you know, they, they can't even use the word anymore because it's already been um, yeah. besmirched with, uh, with mm. terrorism and, and the whole idea of being this kind of destructive force. Kind of like conspiracy, theor- uh, conspiracy theorists. Exactly. The same tre- treatment has been given to the, the term conspiracy, not even conspiracy theorists, but the term conspiracy, you know. It's a dirty word, basically. Um, it's frowned upon and it's, you know, not, no, it's very strange that in a world where clearly conspiracies do happen and it's usually, uh, they're usually enacted by, uh, by people with a lot of power. It's very strange that in such a world, <clears throat> somehow the word conspiracy has come to, uh, to, to be a bit of a, you know, a joke effectively or, or to provoke uh, derision and laughter. Um, just by accident, I suppose, you know, I mean, it's very strange. You know, it's one thing that for such a, if such an idea was, you know, was common in society where people talked about, or some people anyway talked about the idea of there being conspiracies of people getting together and conspiring to do things. <clears throat> if that didn't happen, you can understand how it would be frowned upon. But when it clearly does happen, it's very strange that it's frowned upon, you know? Yeah. I mean, you're not allowed to posit something that, very clearly does actually happen. I mean, it's it's laughed at. It's a you held up. You're held up to ridicule for saying that people get together and people in positions of power get together and conspire to do things that they don't want the public to know about. What a, what a radical idea that is. <coughs> no, that's the best use of the word, right there. <laughs> well, um, these, these terms seem to carry ahead. so much emotional and psychological uh, weight as they've been redefined. That um, you know, there's this almost kind of knee-jerk uh, reaction uh, now that people hear about it and, and or hear the terms because they don't, they don't want to be associated with conspiracy theorists or radicals, and uh, it seems like all it succeeds in doing is shutting down any kind of uh, real thought on the matter, and successfully among yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. Um... But on the on the topic of um, what's the topic again? Yeah, on the topic of um, radical Islam. On, on radical Islam, <clears throat> it's um, I mean the Carson, you asked how we got from um, here, yeah, from then to from, now, from then to now, in terms of it not being not having been something that was. That really existed in the way we understand understand it today, and how did we get to to that position today, where everybody knows what radical Islam is and it's everywhere and they're out to get us and stuff? Um, well, it's been completely manufactured, uh, largely, and it's no it's no mystery really, because I mean, as I mentioned earlier, these Western powers <clears throat> after the First World War, when the U.S. kind of uh, and the, and the British came out of it on top, particularly the U.S. they um, the, and the Ottoman Empire was defeated, and kind of there was these lands in the Middle East that were opened opened up to to Western exploitation, and they were in a position to exploit it. Um, obviously, that that colonial colonialism and um, the kind of um, colonial regimes that were put in place in the Middle East at that time were 
very much in keeping with the with the British colonialism, for example, of the of the previous uh, two or three hundred years, where it was very much a, a uh, informed by a racist ideology, a British and American racist ideology, that these brown-skinned people were lesser than and they were there to be ruled effectively. So they treated them quite badly. And as is normal for any human being, when you're treated badly, you kind of eventually can only take so much and you can then get together and have some kind of a, an uprising or a, or a rebellion. But um, in the way that the, these Western powers structured the Middle East, they kind of divided it up and created these new countries, Iraq and uh and, and Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, etc., and, <clears throat> and and then Israel, they um, they did that with it for the purpose of, of controlling them, and and they put in these kind of tin pot tin pot dictators or, or people that they were able to control, or that they eventually got to control afterwards. So the even though there were new so called independent countries in the Middle East, they weren't independent at all. They were very much under the, under the control of these Western powers, and. That situation, that the abuse of, of, of power in that way and, and the, the influence of an external power in the, in the, in the affairs of a, of a so, so-called independent state, like these states were in the Middle East, <clears throat> led to people, um, a major pan-Arab uh, movement rising up in the kind of 30s, 40s and 50s and into the 60s, um, were the, the, what might be what now would supposedly fit into or would be um, retroactively expl- uh, um, described as radical Islam at the time were effectively secular socialist uh, Arab movements that uh, were lobbying and were, were fighting at, at certain times for um, uh, unification of the of the Arab world effectively from even let's say maybe maybe not Iran but could even include Iran from Iran <clears throat> all the way um, through the Middle East and down into North Africa to the kind of Arab uh, Muslim countries in North Africa. They there was a movement there trying to effectively <clears throat> get those, get those countries to unite under a pan Arab uh, kind of banner and with the goal of kicking out Western powers and like yeah. Arab lands for Arab people effectively. Uh, but they were they were defined by <clears throat> a very secular. I not even religious in the sense of not not cert, not a, not even that they weren't radical Islam. They weren't even a religious uh, state. These people were not arguing. They were arguing for non-religion, uh, effectively Islam, to be kept out of the the affairs of the state, effectively a separation of of state and religion, secularism, uh, socialism, and you know all sorts of basically they were. In the in the fifties and in the sixties in particular, they were also informed by the kind of Western kind of uh, you know um, at the time the civil rights movements in the U.S. Mm-hmm. as well that affected many places in the world. So this is the kind of thing that was uh, being pushed for at the time, and of course that, like I said, that would be called it's the farthest thing from radical Islam as we know it today. But of yeah. course, they would uh, probably people from the Brookings Institute. Institute would describe uh, that as <laughs> the origins of radical Islam when it was simply the uh, it was simply. Uh, what it was the origins of was a, a, a movement of indigenous Arabs in the Middle East to kick out Western powers from messing with their countries and stealing their natural resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they had a flag. It was called the Pan Arab flag, and you'll recognise it because so many of the countries today still have a variant of that same flag: the Palestinian flag, the Jordanian flag, the Iraqi flag, the Syrian flag, the Egyptian flag. 
are all based on Hong the Pan Arab flag, which was the black, white, green, and then a red uh, triangle in the middle of it. Yep. So that's and even that's what the, they're all saying. That's mm-hmm. the symbolizing we want to unite, basically. Even into Afghanistan, you know, and it was in the, in the 1970s that the that the Americans overthrew effectively a, a secular, secular socialist government in Afghanistan uh, in favor of the the Taliban that they used to that they armed and funded and trained as as is well known um, to to fight against the Russians. They kind of baited the Russians to come in by setting up, by funding and arming and training these radical Islamists in, in Afghanistan in the nineteen seventies and. <clears throat> Yeah, and baited the the Russians were ready. Had some, you know, uh, were supporting that secular socialist government, and uh, the Americans came in and tried to kind of overthrew it. Supported the radicals, that baited the Russians in a little bit, and then you had the whole Russian Afghan war at the time, which was really a proxy war fought between the Soviet Union and America uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. So uh, that that case is well known, but there are so many others. Oh man. I got, I'm going to make a disclosure here. I have a book in front of me called Secret Affairs, Britain's Collusion with Radical Islam. Um, it's a history of the 20th century, basically, and the British Empire and then later UK. All the kind of cases in which they were involved in literally radicalizing young Muslims or young Arabs uh, all over the Middle East and North Africa and beyond. Um, it's written by Mark Curtis, who they can't label as a radical because Mark Curtis used to write policy papers for Chatham House, which is the <laughs> English branch of the Council of Foreign Relations. And it's a, it's a superb book because he's basically gone through the British archives, the government archives, the ones they at least allow you to see and that hopefully aren't cooked because they, they're notorious in terms of historical disclosure. But um, he still comes up with some gems. It's, it's basically like a WikiLeaks, uh, WikiLeaks kind of a... a uh, it's, it's based on first-hand diplomatic cables mm-hmm. between British officials over the 20th century. I just want to read you a little bit here um, concerning Iran. So, <clears throat> here we go. In her memoirs written in exile in 1980, the Shah's twin sister, Princess Ashraf Pahlavi, observed that, quote, many influential clergymen formed alliances with representatives, representatives of foreign powers most often the British, and there was in fact a standing joke in Persia that if you picked up a clergyman's beard, you would see the words made in England stamped on the other side. (laughs) Ashraf wrote that after the Second World War, quote, with the encouragement of the British who saw the mullahs as an effective counterforce to the communists, which is basically socialist, the normal secular progressive types, um, quote, the elements of the extreme religious right were starting to surface again after years of being suppressed. So, right, they're generally right-wing, you know, radical Islamists, and they, in their own countries, they would naturally be suppressed. They would be in jails, like, like the ideological godfather of Al-Qaeda, um, Saeed Khatib. He was jailed for most of his life in Egypt, but then he, he finally got out, and Al-Qaeda types like Al-Zarwaki, I can't remember his name, in in the 2000s, he was always citing and quoting from this guy. Oh, he was like the father of our movement. Well, yeah, in Egypt, he was most of the time in jail because he was nuts. So they've cultivated um, in very intricate ways 
not necessarily always knowing what they were doing. They did not know what the end goal would be, which was today's crazy caricature of of Islam, where uh, the, the professed goal of Islamic State is to create a world caliphate. You know, that's a caricature of what was a natural movement they wanted to co-opt and suppress, which was pan-Arab or more generally pan-Muslim integration. And uh, yeah, they they. Mark Hurst's book goes on. He he has amazing parts where there's, you know, there's airplanes coming in with suitcases full of cash to specific clergymen in Egypt, in Iran, Pakistan. Uh, so that that's at that's at the level of bribing and buying and owning the ideological, the people who they know will have uh, influence over the youngsters, who will then be useful. We're mm. shipping out into various conflicts around the world. At the end of Curtis's book, he has a chapter titled uh, <laughs> Londonistan, A Green Light to Terrorism. It, his book only comes up to the 1990s, so you can imagine where it's gone from here. But he begins this chapter, London in the 1990s was one of the world's major centers for radical Islamic groups organizing terrorism abroad. And then he lists all the groups, and some of them were sort of secular and, quote, actual revolutionary groups. But then all, all the other names that we're familiar with, Al-Qaeda, which sort of began in the 90s, they were all in London. It, some of the personnel, Osama bin Laden, uh, was in London in, up till 1994. He goes on to list them all, and he, he says they all had bank accounts. They all had post office addresses in London the whole way through the 90s. Um, and they were being recruited by MI6, they were ending up in Bosnia to fight the Serbs or fight Chechnya. Chechnya also to give the Russians something to think about. So it's a very carefully cultivated um, radicalization machine, basically. Yeah, the a- Western Empire it needs radicals. Mm-hmm. They, without them, it would have fallen on its face yeah. long before now. I mean, maybe a good way to look at it would be if you imagine uh, America as it is and has been for for quite a long time, being subject to um, a, a kind of a, a colonization to a certain extent, uh, or <clears throat> or um, invasions, and generally having some other power in the world uh, able to influence uh, life in. And very interested and very invested in influencing life, political and social life in in America. And if they decided that the best way they could control America would be to promote the radical Christians that exist and have existed in America for for quite a long time. And if lots of lots of money and funding and um, <clears throat> uh, influence was was extended to to those people, uh, and they were brought up. In, if if they were elevated in society and given a lot of power uh, by a you know a foreign uh, state actor, uh, what America would be like today? I mean, America would be a hotbed of of radical Christianity, where you'd have all sorts of groups like the Ku Klux Klan and the fundamentalist Christians and the. Well, in a way, that is kind of what was done in the seventies: the moral majority, the rise of Reagan. No, but I'm talking here about the really extreme groups. You know what okay. I mean? The, the, I mean, the analogy I'm drawing here is between what they've done in the Middle East and what they could have done as a, as yeah. an example, what they could have done in America with these uh, really right wing, the kind of people that really fundamentalist religious Christians in, in America. 
and how they could have been used and you could have picked different people, different uh, characters to, to lead different groups. And, and, you know, I mean, there's plenty, there are some groups in America who religious, Christian religious groups who espouse a kind of a holy war and taking up arms. If those people have been given the kind of um, support and money and, <clears throat> and promotion that uh, the same characters on the Muslim side in the Middle East have been given over the past hundred years, uh, then certainly you, you could easily have just just flip it around and America today would be a hotbed of radical Christianity and you'd have, um, uh, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know what you call the groups, wouldn't be Al-Qaeda or something. Would be, Christian uh, state. Or, uh, Christian state, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the CS would be, uh, you know, would be this threat, <laughs> threat to the entire world and would be carrying out terror attacks, uh, you know, uh, in different places around the world. I and mean, it would be very easy to do. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, that, that's interesting because I think to some extent that that, that has happened here. Um, there's a very interesting film documentary called Silhouette City that looks at the institutionalized uh, kind of Christian crusader uh, mentality that's been imposed on uh, military bases in in Colorado, uh, where soldiers would be kind of more than, they would be punished, in fact, if they didn't go to church. And, um, you know, the, the uh, producers of the film kind of make the point that uh, there is such a strong streak of radical Christianity, if you want to call it that, in the U.S. that um, that has been able to uh, link itself <clears throat> to uh, the military-industrial complex <clears throat> and the whole manifest destiny, manifest destiny, <clears throat> the shining city on the hill, uh, going into Iraq uh, to you know basically <clears throat> destroy this kind of um, uh, you know they would call. You, you know, Iraqis infidels or, or uh, you know. Right, but the, the difference in that situation is that that's from the, that's, that that ideology is used as a, as, as the ideology of good effectively against the evil of it, of, of Islam, of, of radical Islam. Uh, that, that's the way it's promoted in the West, you know. Mm-hmm. But the, the kind of analogy would be that if you had switched it around and turned the whole world on its head to a certain extent and have Iran, for example, as a major world power, uh, an imperial power for the past 300 years, and it wanted to keep uh, control over Europe and America, for example, and how it could have um, promoted, with, if it had enough power and influence, it could have promoted right-wing radical uh, Christian groups uh, and, and funded them in America and, and, and you know, given them power in America and in Europe. And then um, the, the the more democratic uh, elements within uh, within politics in Europe and, and the U.S. who are fighting against that, they would have been attacked by radical uh, Christian groups. You know, CS, as Harrison said, uh, Chris, or sorry, um, Christian, uh, Christian state. CS, yeah. CS uh, would have been attacking uh, various governments in in Europe to destabilize them, uh, but all would have in been, order to keep the status quo, in order to not to actually bring about said Christian state. No, but to, no. to to keep them controlled by Iran, for example, to keep them under Iran, some because Iran has a lot of control and power in Europe and and in in the US, you know, over political life and social life. So that's just a way to look at it and, and see how it could have happened, and that's what you would be dealing with. And of course, it would be completely false. People imagine you living in Europe or America today, not being. Uh, a radical, being a member of the majority or not radical Christians and seeing this group running around 
bombing places and and, and claiming that you're everybody here should be a, a, a member of Christian state and and uh, embrace uh, fundamentalist uh, Christianity. And, or we'll and, cut your head off. Or we'll cut your head off, and you're going, what the hell? This is this is bullshit. Well, this is the position that most Muslims are mm-hmm. in right now in the Middle East. Yeah, and that's where the just to kind of. Um, like sum up in my own mind what you guys have been saying, it sounds like what has happened is, first of all, there's a kind of bait and, bait and switch that's gone on. So we've had these kind of giant movements that were kind of legitimate responses to, to grievances and to oppression in these Middle Eastern countries that were popular movements. So these are the kinds of things that people could, that um, Middle Easterners, whether they're um, Christian Muslim or whatever could get behind because they were living in those places. They had, they had their specific um, injustices that were done to them. And they were, so these movements were a response to that. So in a sense, that was, that was the movement that the majority of people could get behind. And it arguably isn't a, a nasty one or an evil one. It was, it's the, the right response. It's the only response to a people who are oppressed in any kind of way. But that was immediately naturally um, baited and switched. So those resistance movements or those political movements advocating some kind of change in the countries uh, involved were then tagged with the the label of terrorism. Whether or not that word was used, they were seen as the enemy and that needed to be destroyed. And so we've seen specific examples of that in in all the decades since, up up to um, the invasion of Iraq and the Iraqi resistance, who were then totally subverted um, by the you know U.S. special forces and guys over there that basically ended up creating death squads that were that engaged in real terrorism and discredited any kind of um, legitimate um, like insurgency against the the American occupation. And then at the same time, while this is all going on, you have so you've got the the subversion of or and demonization of uh, a real. Um, resistance with with uh, with a good cause. At the same time as that, you've got what happened, like in Afghanistan, in the '80s, and even right before that, where you you take what can only be termed like criminal gangs or these kind of fringe lunatic groups that came out of the kind of Wahhabi tradition, or even if they even just criminal groups in the regions that were then given external support, external foreign support, without which they couldn't have survived. Because like you guys had said, in previous times, these guys would just go to prison. They would be looked at the same way that um, people in any other country would look at just criminal gangs or just crazy lunatic groups like the Ku Klux Klan or like these neo-Nazi groups that, uh, that prop up in other countries. And or like the like the mob or the mafia, like they're 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 groups that the ordinary people don't support and are actually repulsed by. And so, in any kind of like homegrown situation in any of these countries, these groups would not gain any kind of support. But because they were mm-hmm. given money and weapons and mm-hmm. all these resources, that's what actually supports them and made them like kind of like a force to be reckoned with. And then, mm-hmm. so when you tie those two phenomena together, you get the you get those two really disparate groups matched up in people's minds, and I think very deliberately. So now the average American, for example, sees um, all Muslims as being part part of and supporting this tiny group of criminals that they don't support, and so mm-hmm. it's like they've gotten 
like they're they're hit with both ends of the stick because not only is their resistance movement kind of subverted and they can't get anything done, but they're associated with terrorists and no one in the rest of the world will support them. Which just it's just crazy when you think about um, just how just how effective the the West has been in totally um, totally making a big you know cluster of what's going on over there. Yeah, they've taken the worst elements of of society, and in particular countries that they've been that they've invaded and occupied. They've taken the worst elements and promoted those worst elements, and and they're usually the you know the most kind of atavistic or the most uh, the base you know characters in society who you know the con men, the criminals, the thugs, that kind of thing, and and they get uh, funding and and support from uh you know from the U.S. from a major world power. And and then they represent, uh, as you said, Harrison. They re- re- they come out in the name of Islam, and that's how you uh, tar uh, an entire people. You have to make sure that uh, these people espouse a, a religious ideology. They're not just in it for the money. They don't just say, you know, we're not just um, we're not like they're not like the mafia or whatever. They have to be associated with Islam, kind of, because in that way you can demonize the entire. Oh, well, all Muslims almost in the minds of Westerners, you know. So, um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, of, of course, this this kind of element that have been promoted, uh, and they are just thugs, they have no conception of religion or any kind of spirituality whatsoever. They just use that as a, <clears throat> as a calling card uh, for the reason they just give. <clears throat> but they, um, the thing is that these people are, are as I said, they're the, they're the lowest level in society and they're, they have no problem being extremely violent and that, puts normal people in, in their societies in, in a position of being afraid of them and, and having to kind of, because ordinary people aren't prone to, you know, just um, spontaneous and, and brutal violence. And, and when that happens, they, they tend to kind of go quiet and, and bow their heads and, and just uh, try to try to survive effectively, you know. So that's how these people can uh, can actually have a lot of influence and in society, especially, but only, but only in the context that they're given massive support from, from outside, and that's been the case with, uh, with ISIS and and Al Qaeda and these these other groups. They've all been supported uh, uh, in a way that has allowed them to do and become what they've become, and that would never have happened under normal circumstances, as we've been saying, and um, that has been done very specifically to. Uh, on, on, in a direct way f- for Western imperial uh, designs on the Middle East to be achieved, like if, for example, in Syria, trying to overthrow the Assad government, they can directly invo- be directly involved in, in in trying to overthrow a government and fighting. And um, they, they can also, uh, well, the other part is that they're, they're able to influence, um, you know, Western populations against uh Muslims in general, and justify uh, continued Western imperial intervention in these Middle Eastern countries because uh, the Muslims in general have been demonized and therefore you'll get a lot more public support back home for doing something about those crazy Muslims because you have associated them with uh, this kind of brutality and, and violence that you have effectively foisted on them artificially <clears throat> and tarred the vast majority of people who are not like that in the Middle East with this brush of being violent uh, extremists because you're promoted a small group of violent extremists. Uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, Saudi Arabia, I mean, Saudi Arabia is a, is, a, is this 
state that was effectively created by the West, the Middle East, as Neil was saying, as a kind of a, an outpost of Western uh, influence in the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia is a major player in funding and uh, providing weapons and, and money to these ISIS types. But uh, Saudi Arabia is a friend of the West. It's a, it's a, you know, it's uh, it's held up. Uh, it, well, certainly nothing very bad is ever said against it. It's never, I mean, it's the first country that should be overthrown if the West was interested at all in dealing with any kind of radical Islam. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's uh, it's our partner in the Middle East, which is just a ridiculous and flagrant and egregious double standard that, <laughs> that a lot of people complain about it. But, uh, you know, I was watching an interview with um, Manuel Valls, the <clears throat> French Prime Minister, recently and he was asked it was in french and he was asked about by the interviewer about um how can the french uh, government uh, continue to support saudi arabia when it's basically slaughtering and killing you know men women and children in yemen and vals had no problem just saying well you know uh, the thing that's most important here is what's good for the french economy and uh, our relationship with saudi arabia is is good for the french economy therefore that's why we should support it only just to, he basically just put uh, economic concerns above uh, humanitarian concerns effectively or, or effectively French the French government indirectly assisting in the slaughter of men, women and children he put that below uh, economic concerns for France. So you know when you have people like that who are the leaders of the free world and the Western world who can come out and say that kind of thing and get away with it and no one, Nothing happens. No one. There's no riots in the street. There's no overthrow of the French government <clears throat> for something like that, uh, or, or some lobbying. To you know, if, if those people aren't sanctioned in a serious way, well, then it's kind of like you got to kind of just accept that it's, it's going to change. You know, I mean, the, the the horse is bolted in that respect, and there's there's no there's no way that it's going to change at this point. The no. follow up question the interviewer should have asked was, "Have you no conscience?" Yeah. yeah. But it was kind of obvious, you know. But this this whole creation, I mean, I just explained what the creation of ISIS was for. It's for it's to justify uh, continued Western involvement and control over the Middle East and to facilitate the overthrow of uh, of governments. They did it with Gaddafi. They're trying to do it with uh, Assad in Syria. And, um, you know, you're not dealing with people who are ra- rational people. And the real problem that anybody who analyzes these situations and you know, it's been analyzed all the time by the alternative news community and stuff. And um, what they don't understand is that they're not dealing with rational people, the people who formulate and develop these ideas, this this policy effectively. I mean, it's a ridiculous policy for, uh, for a Western government to um, to support that which they claim to be fighting against. But it's a very effective policy and it's worked very well for the reasons I just gave, you know. So, uh, but what people don't understand is that... Uh, uh, is that these people aren't rational. You can't just look at what they're do, doing and try and interpret what they're doing from the point, from the point of view of rationality. You know, what, what is America's goal here in the Middle East? Why are they doing this? So they're fighting ISIS and it doesn't seem that they're fighting ISIS. So what could be going on here? You know, and people will like go, go, go through all sorts of mental gymnastics to try and explain this to themselves. When it was explained to them, uh, I mean, it's on Wikipedia. So it's explained. Uh, well, but it's, it's, it's this thing about the reality based community where supposed unnamed, um, aid 
to George W. Bush back in 2004, and there's a lot of suspicion that it was probably Karl Rove, uh, told a New York Times magazine uh, um, journalist there, Ron Suskind, told him uh, about the reality-based community. And he explained to him, this, this is a very candid, uh, he didn't, he asked for an anonymity, but it was a very candid explanation of how these people in, in Western powers actually think about the situation. And because they're psychopaths and fundamentally psychologically deviant, um, it, it kind of makes sense, but only in that context. And he said, um, he told this journalist that, that, you know, that this journalist, him and other people like him, i.e. anybody who analyzes or tries to analyze what's going on in the world and what Western uh, government policies are and what they mean and what they're trying to achieve, that those people who do that are part of the reality-based community. And that sounds like a positive thing, but it was actually, uh, he wasn't using it in a, in a positive way, this Carl uh, Rove. It, it was a, it was kind of like... A, pejorative. Yeah, it was pejorative, effectively, because he said that... Um, People like this journalist and anybody who looks at the news is, are in what the, these Western powers call uh, the reality-based community. And he says that is that um, you're the kind of people who believe that solutions emerge from your judicious stu study of discernible reality. And what he means by that, uh, simplified, is basically you just look at the situation and you think, okay, what's going on here? Uh, let me work it out. Okay, A plus B equals C. And I said, that's not the way it works anymore. You can't look at it that way. You're not going to figure anything out if you try and analyze what we're doing based on effectively rational analysis of the situation. So uh, indirectly, without saying it, he was basically saying we're totally irrational here. But he, he wasn't saying that in a pejorative way. He was saying that in a positive way. So he had kind of flipped things around where he was saying rationality was completely nuts. You're just, you're just clueless. And it's, it's the reality, it's the, um, it's the powers who, in the way that they think, that's the really rational <clears throat> way to go about it. But it's irrational from a normal human being. And he said that the way they go about, go about it, well, the way he described it was that we're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. And that's the most important part of it. We create our own reality. Um, and he says, and while you, journalists and anybody else out there, are studying that reality uh, judiciously, as you will, he said, we'll act again, creating other new realities. Uh, which you can study too. And, but then by the time you're studying it, we'll have moved on and created a completely new reality where ISIS is, where Al Qaeda is no longer the enemy. Mm -hmm. Now it's our friend that we're supporting. Figure that one out, assholes. <laughs> you know? And they're, like and they're like laughing novel. at you. <clears throat> they're laughing at you, you know? And he said, Oh no, but now Al Qaeda is our enemy again. And then six months later, no, Al Qaeda is our friend. And people are like, what? What's going on? Hang on. I'm trying to judicially study rationally what you're doing there. And I'm, I'm just frying my brain, you know? I don't really get it. And, and, and they just laugh at you and carry on with their reality creating. And these, these people are just consumed with their own hubris and narcissism and psychopathology. And they, they think, and to a certain extent, they do have the power to do what they say they, they're doing, which is creating new realities and messing with your heads, messing with the planet messing with people's perception all the time. So unless you understand that that is the way that they uh, proceed, that's the way that they develop and implement their policies. That's that's the, the psychological framework with which they approach those things. You're not going to understand what they're doing unless you understand that they're fundamentally nuts. But the problem is they have the power to 
externalize and implement their nuttiness onto the world. And you need to just go, you need to just spell it out. If you, if you want to be, uh, people in the reality-based community need to understand they're not, they're dealing with reality creators, not some objective reality that happens and it's based on some kind of fundamental set of um, rights and wrongs or, or worst of all, believe that what people say, people in power say they are doing is what they're actually doing. I think that's the core, core point that you can draw from this is that what this guy Carl Rowe was saying to, to the world effectively was that you cannot believe that what we say we are doing is what we're actually doing. If you try and study what we're doing or take what we've said at face value and then draw conclusions from from that, you're going to be fundamentally wrong every single time. You're totally going to be lost. You have to understand effectively that when we say we're doing or what we say we are doing publicly is not what we're doing. So the only way to deal with this, if anybody who wants to kind of really analyze it and bring some truth to the situation is to rather than try and necessarily figure it out, you can just see it from that point of view that these people are lying all the time. And in fact, uh, it is quite simple in that you can more or less from the point of view of uh, explaining or trying to explain what Western the Western agenda is in the Middle East and elsewhere in the world, you simply take what they say <clears throat> and turn it on its head. Mm-hmm. Everything they say that they do is all couched in positive democratic, freedom-loving terms, it is effectively exactly the opposite. Yeah, and I, th- I think you just, you pretty much nailed the, the heart of the matter there, Joe, because that's, that's really what we've got to do, what anyone has to do if they want to be able to actually uh, judiciously understand reality. Because, um, you know, contrary to what Rove was kind of saying, I think that with this kind of knowledge... And, and perspective, it does create, uh, it does give the tools to be able to kind of, to really understand what's going on because it gives you, it gives you the, like what they're actually thinking and how they approach it. And I think that his little rant there on, you know, what he's, what he was saying about this, uh, this way that they create reality, it's, it's pretty well des- described, I think, in Ponderology. And the, the just the, the kind of double speak that goes on, and the, all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that doesn't really make sense when you're trying to think about things in terms of the way ordinary people think and act in everyday life. Because if you use those as your categories for trying to understand what's going on, they're not going to work. Because they psychopaths and these other like pathological people have different different categories <laughs> of of thought and and action. They they don't operate the way that you would intuitively think that a person would, would operate. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, that's really what it comes down to, is to have, have this kind of basic psychological knowledge, on the, the, first of all, on the way different types of individuals work, including psychopaths, and then how that applies on all kinds of mm-hmm. levels. And that's, that's why Ponderology is you know, such, a, such an, I think, um, you know, fundamental book that that people need to, to read and just to get the concepts to understand what's going on. Now, mm-hmm. um, just as an example of that, um, this doesn't directly relate to ponderology, but I was reading um, an article about this guy in the UK who did a study on one of the, one of the groups over there. I can't remember their name, but they, the, their head kind of preacher guy was Omar Bakri. And... Yeah. The study that they did on on the this group and the people that were involved in this group, one of their main one of the main conclusions is that, that this guy came up with was that 
the people least likely to join this group were actual practicing Muslims. So the more religious you were, the, 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 the less likely you were to join a radical group. And so first of all, just that as a fact, you know, just to take into account when you're thinking about this kind of thing is kind of really mind-blowing to think about that because mm. it totally goes against any everything that that we think we know about radicals and and uh, muslim extremism like that that whole that whole association between islam and terrorism because when you look at it actual religious muslims are the least likely to join terrorist organizations or even just mm. not terrorist organizations but these <clears throat> these other groups that might just be called radical or um you know the, and that have these kind of political beliefs and so the I read this so the the guy that was writing this blog post um summarizing the results of this guy's book he made a couple points uh, in that direction one of which was that these groups ideologies um had nothing or virtually nothing to do with Islam with the actual religion in fact he's like uh, this is a quote that he wrote he says he's talking about the writings um of these kind of preachers these imams or mullahs that uh, that are kind of lead these groups as the kind of spellbinders, and like Neil said, these are the guys that are often more more often than not working directly with MI6 and MI5 or other intelligence groups from other countries. And so he said, uh, "quote There is very little spiritual religiosity of um, in any of these writings. They are political. They are ideological. They are expressions of a violent political social movement." So. Oftentimes, like the that's just one of those points that that has to be taken into account about about normal human psychology. And if you just have even that like, little basic bit of inf- of information and knowledge about the way people work, then that should automatically like dispel so much of the propaganda. But so many people don't even have that tiny bit of information, and there's so much more than that. Um, and it, it comes just down to these basic things, like uh, I think like a lot of what what's written in Ponderology and a lot of the basic concepts are just very simple ideas that then have massive repercussions on the way societies move and the way people um, get attracted to ideologies, the way those ideologies or political movements or religious movements then get um, perverted and twisted around into something that totally is the, well something that is the total opposite of what they started out as, and. When we look at that in terms of of Islam and radical extremism, terrorism, you find that the vast majority of Muslims do not support any of these terrorist groups. They are just as repulsed by them as Westerners are, as Americans are. And in fact, I, I, I made the, the point on the show last week that if you think about it, the people most at risk by groups like ISIS are Muslims. People living in Syria and Iraq, the ones that are actually engaged, you know, on the ground with these people and fighting them. So it's reality is is like 180 degrees away from from what's presented in the mainstream media and from politicians, and it is it is a total illusion. It's a total lie. What they're saying mm-hmm. about this. Yeah, the uh, when when you hear you know some of the you know hardcore uh, anti-Muslim speakers, you know, like Trump and. And, and many many others, you know, they they present that picture that you know it's it's Islam as the source of this radicalization, and that you know any any Muslim, any practicing Muslim is prone 
through incremental stages to to be radicalized and you know and and in truth like it, it's it's the opposite like like you're just saying Harrison you know this the study people who are religious are don't don't want to have anything to do with this yeah. this 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 extreme ideology and you know it, it's it's just uh it, it's crazy i mean the you, you see isis um you know recruiting you see, there's there's been a number of stories uh just this past year where you know you see isis recruiting children and they're going after children one a because you know they're easy targets but also because you know they don't have there's there's no um, there's no conversion process and yeah, there's no popular basis of support mm-hmm. and and so you know they're they they can they can recruit these children and uh, indoctrinate them so you know they don't have to go through yeah, what, any kind of what 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 a what a radical again it's a good term what a radical thesis this whoever you're quoting or whoever you're talking about there is is promoting the idea that you can take a human being and through a, a process of indoctrination indoctrination uh, get them to do stuff yeah. wow and this is real this is unique this is a unique character trait of muslims not just human beings muslims mm. you know it's such a preposterous and brain dead thesis that it's just like i mean that person needs to be slapped with a wet fish you know cuz or something well, you know lots something of slappy cuz the thing the thing is the, the the idea that uh what he's saying is that you know a group of people can be scared they're saying muslims in particular are unique in their proclivities or their ability to be scared intimidated threatened into uh believing something okay so that's just muslims then right so that's why we should fear muslims but in 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 that process whoever has engaged in that process and create let's say there are radical muslims who have undergone that process and become radicalized because They've been scared, intimidated, threatened into believing something and 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 carrying out some actions. Uh, whoever did that, and we explained who who's been doing that for for um, in, in the show. Uh, let's look at the effects of that then, or what that has been used to do. What have we seen, or what and what have we seen over the past few years, and what are we seeing happening today in Western Europe and in America? We're seeing a process of let's use the term radicalization of pasty white Western uh, civilians into uh, hating Muslims through, through a process of fear, intimidation and threats. So uh, if people want to make that argument of radicalization, that that Muslims are, are prone to radicalization, well then let's use the, the example that's right uh, in front of us every day today in, from Western Europe in that this exact same process uh, our, our Western European peoples are, on, are undergoing the exact same process. They're prone to being radicalized mm-hmm. uh, against Muslims by the propagation of the, uh, through the media of the ideas of the the existence of already radicalized uh, and Muslims, so <laughs> it's just it, I don't. I mean, I don't see what. If someone was to make that point to me, I'd be like, "So, <laughs> what point are you, you're making that human beings can be made to believe things?" Exactly. That's what you're saying. Right. So well, Muslims that, can be made to believe things. That's, I see. That's very right. good. You can you can kind of see like the the sources of of this pathology in the West because 
you know the these uh these muslim nations it's not they're not being overcome with this fundamentalist ideology it's it's the west who's really being overcome and, and infected uh in this way you know it, it's it's more indirect but you know the uh isis you know the ideology of isis that's that's not a th- an infecting threat for you know all these muslim countries like it's mm-hmm. you know you can just look that fact alone and see how baseless uh this radicalization as it's put in you know these these uh nutters on you know fox news and such you know it it's it should be apparent mm-hmm. yeah it's a demonization it's a demonization of muslims by saying that Muslims are the kind of people who uh, will, for no good reason, uh, get up and uh, you know commit violent acts against uh, other people because they're just crazy Muslims and Muslims have it inherently in them where they'll just uh, they're it's easy to manipulate them into getting up and committing violent acts against other people. Well, by propagating that belief in Western populations, you're creating exactly the same type of people in Western populations who at some point in the future probably will, many of them will start to get up and start to commit violent, senseless acts against Muslims. Mm-hmm. So if that, and if that is what happens, if that, and, and it's already happening, um, then what are we to conclude? We're to conclude that there is some force or some power on this planet that is not acting against, um, not fighting against ISIS or, 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 you know, trying to make this world safe for democracy or anything like that, but they're actually waging a war uh, on all human beings. Because look at the nefarious and toxic influence that the media and Western governments are having on Western populations by making them, by turning, by radicalizing Western populations against Muslims and turning them into the very thing that they say that that Western populations should fear, they're saying Western populations should fear ISIS, who are, are, are crazy Muslims who will come and commit violent acts. Uh, so you all should be afraid of this. And what's the net result of that? The net result is that you create people in Western European countries who do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. Good job. <laughs> what a what yeah. a wonderful solution that is to the problem. You effectively double the problem. You say that there's people coming and uh, are coming to get you and, and, and attack you for no reason, so we're going to whip you up into a frenzy that says you attack other people for no reason. Somebody wants, somebody in this planet wants all the human beings to attack and fear and threat and feel threatened by each other. Exactly. That's the only conclusion, because that's what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, Carl Rove can, you know, go and take a long walk off a short pier because I've just, uh, I've just judiciously examined his reality creation and, and come up with a very objective conclusion of it. I'm just looking at exactly what the result is and I'm calling it out for what it is, which is that those people are trying to set ordinary human beings of whatever stripe or color or religion against each other because that's what's happening. Well, it's gotten so bad and so absurd that, you know, now, uh, even like on one hand, kind of like what you were saying earlier, Joe. You know, on one hand, the U.S. proclaims to you know be fighting terrorism, and then all of a sudden, you know, well, you know, we 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 need to protect uh, our our friends in Al Qaeda uh, to to fight uh, terrorism. Like it's and like this is being said publicly. Like it's just it's just so mm-hmm. it's so insane. Like that. The Americans are now supporting terrorism to fight terrorism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the fact that you know it was in the news that basically, I mean, it was in 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 American mainstream papers like the Washington Post and the Washington Times and the New York Times that the U.S. government 
via the CIA were directly aiding, as in giving weapons and money, to Al-Qaeda. This was like in articles in these newspapers, and supposedly some Americans read it. And I w- I've often wondered, what did those Americans think about, uh, about that when they read that? If they read that, I mean, those that read it, what did they think about that in fairly clear terms? Mm-hmm. Al-Qaeda, remember who they are? America, your tax dollars are going to buy guns and give money to Al-Qaeda. Now, I know your short-term memory isn't very good, but do you remember who Al-Qaeda is? Just just work with me here. Now look at me, focus. Who is Al-Qaeda? Do you remember? No, I'm getting a blank. Okay, so let me take you back to a day in 2001. Remember the day in 2001? Okay, no, another blank. No, okay, the day was 9-11. Do you remember 9-11? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah I remember yeah, 9-11. Yeah, yeah. 9/11. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who, who attacked us 9-11? Uh, Saddam Hussein. No, 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 no. Okay, yes. <laughs> no? no? Oh, sorry. No, I know that was in the newspaper, but that wasn't true. So, you, there's, a, there's a group. There's a group. Just bear with me. There's a group. You know, follow. They're uh, called... You got the first word there. It's on the tip of your tongue. Al... Islamic State. Not not Al Johnson, no. Not Al Roper. Not Al Bundy. Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda, yes, yes. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember so, them, yeah. How do you feel about your attack? Remember they attacked us nine eleven and we were gonna kick their asses and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, let's yeah, roll. Totally, totally. Let's roll. Remember let's roll. Yeah, yeah, totally. Let's roll. Yeah. Totally. And the box cutters, box cutters, remember box cutters? Yeah. Box cutters, right? Yeah, yeah. And Never forget Twin Towers. Mission accomplished, I thought. Never forget mission accomplished. Okay, it's all coming back now. Okay. Well, okay, Al-Qaeda. Remember Al-Qaeda? You right. hate them, right? Yes. They attacked us in 9-11, right? Yes. Yes, we're, we're going to kick... We're, we've been kicking their ass for the past 10 years, right? Yeah, totally. Right. Like rules. Mm-hmm. Well, they're the ones that your tax dollars are going to buy money or buy, buy weapons and Snickers bars for. Is that okay with you? Uh, can we change channels now? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this, uh, oh, yeah. this suggests somebody- a level of uh, crazy-making. Uh, and cognitive dissonance, because if you if you do try and analyze this rationally, you'll go nuts. Uh, so yep. so it it just it's just a testament to the amount of um, uh, authoritarianism uh, that that lies in people that they are just going along with it and not questioning it, because uh, otherwise you'd go crazy. Um, and so you have to sort of yeah, you know, switch off. You switch off. You you know. You put you you read about Kim Kardashian. Uh, you do whatever it is you and need to do to. That's a very important point, think about Alan, it Alan. Exactly, it's a very important point because while some people might see the kind of thing that I just described as this um, as this big mistake on the part of the of these Western powers, you're, you know, you're a conspiracy theorists or your uh, analysts of, of alternative news who've been, you know, going on about uh, the evil empire and what's really happening and uh, imperial wars, etc. for so long. When they see these people coming out and saying stuff like uh, admitting effectively that, uh, you know, the US is funding and arming Al-Qaeda, they think, finally, you know, that's what I've been saying for like 10 years, Jesus. And now, you know, this guy in the, in the U.S. State Department has more or less admitted it or some general. He just come out and said it. Finally, you know, okay, so the next step is what? We're going to have our day in court. I'm going to be in court and I'm going to give testimony because I've been talking about this for 10 years. So I'm going to be picked, obviously, to get up there and cross-examine that general and just bring the whole house of cards down. It's just going to no. all be over. Finally, no. Why? Because the reality has changed because, in the meantime. Well, it ha- well, no, but they've changed the reality a certain extent, but 
what they've done, that's actually something I think that is calculated by them because of what Alan just said, which is that when they pull back the curtain and say, surprise, we've been screwing you all for this for, for, for forever, basically. You know, we've been lying through our teeth about everything. We're the ones who are evil. We're totally anti-democratic and anti-freedom, and we've been doing this for years, and there you go. They pull back the curtain and, and expose all that, or, you know, a little bit. And as Alan said, people just go, uh, um, I uh, want my mommy. Where's my <laughs> Where's my pacifier? You know, I need to go sit in the corner and cry. You know, I, people just don't uh, yeah. don't know what people can't deal with that. So they can get away with exposing what they've been doing for so long at this point in time because they've set people up. They've just put people into such a state of they've, they've, they've fried their brains and manipulated them for so long with such nonsense and lies and, and, and a bogus, phony reality of freedom and democracy and all that nonsense and fighting terrorism. Even and, and even when it didn't really make sense, people went with it. People bought the lie. They bought into the lie. They went with it. They invested themselves in the the belief of of, of the of the lie. And then when that lie is exposed for what it is, a lie, the people who have invested so much, they they can't turn around and undo it all. They can't go there in their minds. And like Alan said, they, you go kind of people go a bit nuts, crazy, or they certainly feel. That's too much. And that's what they, that's what you get. They, they get feel because, threatened. Right. They feel totally Which threatened. Which is the very thing they were told to feel by Al Qaeda, feel threatened by right. Al Qaeda. They actually sense, have a sensation of that deep threat. Right. When their deeply held beliefs. Yeah. Are revealed to them. And it's, it's that pulling back of the curtain that is actually not uh, a weak, uh, a weak point for them. It's actually a strong point because they realize they can do that. And put people into this kind of state where they will just shut off the look away. They won't, they won't engage anymore, even, you know. Uh, and that's why, and I think that's why so many people, uh, I mean, that's been a process that's ongoing. It's not just in the past 10 or 15 years, it's been ongoing for quite a long time. And I think that's why so many people, um, in, in the West and particularly in the US and stuff just aren't interested, have a long time ago shut off from, um, because, well, they're not fed any information, not fed any truth. They're just told, they're just asked to believe the comfortable, basic, simplistic lie effectively. They're just this, you know, trite, uh, kind of, uh, freedom and democracy kind of platitude type thing. Just believing that, you know, very base, emotional kind of, yeah, USA is good, you know, and, and just believe that, you know. And there's never, no encouragement, there has been no encouragement for any kind of analysis of the situation or any real, uh, any any real truth or inf- truthful information given to them, so they've been fed such a diet for so long of lies and manipulation that they simply don't know how to deal with the truth anymore. They're they're so estranged from the truth that when the truth is dropped in their lap, even if it's a even if it was a positive truth, uh, it, it the problem is it's it, it can't be a positive truth because it has such a negative effect on them because it it pulls the rug out from underneath them. And they no longer have their foundation of freedom and democracy in America. It's that force for good in the world. And they can't all of a sudden reconstruct a new, a new basis. You know, uh, it would take a long time. So they just go, okay, screw it all. I'm not interested anymore. I look away. Reality TV, whatever, you know, and the more illusion effectively. They've been fed a diet of illusory information by our governments for so long, by the media for so long that, uh, that, that's what they, 
fuels them. At least know? Kim Kardashian's a real person. Right. I mean, reality, objective, the role of objective media and the news becomes entertainment. It's almost, it's completely flipped around. Well, you have to wonder. I'm not sure she's a real person. She's a bot. Well, there's there's an and there's a something is. I think they're making a new one. Did anyone anyone <laughs> did anyone see the, the the yeah they're making a new Kim Kardashian? I think the was it was you saw some evidence of them making a new Kim Kardashian in the it was a kind of cover story of this major the biggest um, airship in the world was going to take its maiden flight. Did anybody see that? No. Nope. Um, maybe maybe people saw it. Basically, the it's kind of like a, a big blimp, but the back of it, <laughs> the back of it is the back of it is is let's say it's a peachy shape. <laughs> and when I saw it, I said, "Oh, look, they're making a new Kim Kardashian." It just started a started with a particular. Oh yeah, I did see that. part. Anyway, uh, we're digressing here. Uh, I've had a question um, for some time. I'm going to throw it out to the panel. What in the name, I know we've suggested ideology, but really, for the teenagers and the 20-somethings, what in the name of Sinbad has lured thousands of Muslim, in quote, descendants of Muslims, really, immigrants to Europe? Um, So they're basically Europeans, and some of them are white, and some of them come from the United States as well. What has lured, lured tens of thousands of teenagers, especially the girls, to Syria, because mm-hmm. it ain't religion. I doubt very much it's ideology. What? Okay. What is it? Well, I think it's got to do. Well, I think it's pretty much described in Ponderology again, um, because. I mean, well, I've got some quotes. Maybe I'm going to read out, but one of the kind of basics that that Lobachevsky describes, he's talking about the all these processes and how how, um, you know, psychopaths gain power and all that. But all along the way in this book, he's got all kinds of words that he comes up with, which are really, like I said, just basic concepts that kind of make things make sense. But one thing he starts out with is he's talking about the different kinds of um, kind of pathological groups that you can have. And so he says there's basically two kinds of groups. And the first one are the, kind, are the ones that, um, from the very beginning, they're obviously pathological and so he gives examples like mobs and gangs and um, just criminal organizations. And these are the kinds of groups that, even in the culture in which they find themselves, they are they're seen as criminal and no one really supports them. So, for example, while the mob may have a lot of influence, like in the States or any kind of mafia, um, and, you know, have some support and even like, um, behind the scenes support with politicians and, uh, you know, lawmakers and all that kind of stuff. You, you couldn't have a mob boss run for president as a mob boss on the mob ticket, so to say. They wouldn't get any kind of popular support. He could do it by pretending to be a Republican or a Democrat and, you know, giving the talking points and, um, talking about American values and stuff like that. But he couldn't be just go out there and say what he really thinks and get to power. On the other, and but the way they do go, to, the way they do get power is is through that kind of subversion. So that's when you need an actual political group that has some kind of resonance with the people involved. And so that's where you get um, kind of it could be a resistance movement or any kind of political platform which has 
which is either redressing some kind of wrong or uh, promoting some kind of new policy that people actually support. And that's how psychopaths get into positions of, positions of power, is by riding on the, the, the ideology, the coattails, the wishes and the hopes and the values of people around them. Of course, that'll get to a point where members of that organization and people in general will start seeing that that ideology doesn't match up with the actions. Like, so their words and their actions don't match. They're saying one thing, but they're obviously doing something else. Now, when we have a group like ISIS, it is obviously a, like a criminal group. And that's, so that's coming back to what we said before about how, how this group doesn't have any kind of popular support among the, among, among the Muslim population worldwide whether in, in Syria or Iraq or elsewhere. Now, that, and that's why they need so many foreign, uh, so much foreign support and actually so many foreign individuals involved. So these, like the, how, how many people are in, are estimated to be in ISIS, like in Syria and Iraq right now? I can't remember, like 50,000 or something? And the, something like that, yeah. yeah. And so the, the vast majority of these people are from other countries. And um, if we can believe the kind of, um, like some of the leaks that have come out just in the past few weeks, there was, um, well, just a few days ago, for example, there was this list of 22,000 um, Europeans that was released allegedly by this defector from ISIS. There was another leak of, uh, a few days before that that had basically given a, a rundown of foreign nationals, you know, working for ISIS, and they did a um, a little breakdown of them, and the vast majority of them were from Saudi Arabia, but they were from all over the place. Um, so all the Middle Eastern nations and um, um, Europe, European ones, Chechnya, uh, Bosnia, and, you know, France, Germany. I think France was, yeah, France was the, the highest, um, uh, was the, the, the European country with the most people, apparently, in ISIS. Now, so a criminal organization cannot gain um, cannot gain popular support they can't do what they do um, on a massive level because it just doesn't work that way so they need some kind of foreign support now so when you look at, at Daesh at Isis they have they have arguably been massively successful but the only way they've been able to be so successful is through sheer terror and that terror needs massive external foreign support. They need the support of an actual nation state or many nation states in order to do what they're doing. Now, mm -hmm. so so if we look at where they're getting their support, the kind of people that are that are joining up, there's um, there well the one conclusion we can draw the first one is that they're not getting their support from just the general normal population. So we don't we don't have um, Muslim nations kind of like massively join uh, like raising up their arms and saying, we support ISIS, like, this is, this is exactly what we believe. It just doesn't happen that way. So who are these people that are actually joining? Well, Bonerology describes that, and um, it's, <laughs> well, yeah. he breaks it down. They're carefully groomed. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, it strikes me that... Go ahead. Go on. Well, no, you say your thing. I'm going to find my quote. Well, while you're finding okay. your quote, Harrison, uh, oh, go ahead, Neil. Were you going to say something? Yeah, it's it's pretty clear at this point that they're, um, uh, it's a network. It's a form of network, and these these people are very carefully groomed, and they in turn groom groom each other, um, through social media, social media accounts, which very often um, lead back to the U.S., which begs the question of 
why they haven't been closed down because mm-hmm. the NSA would see all. Remember, we see everything. So the, uh, th- that's just in terms of um, getting the hook in with, uh, with with young people, especially in European cities, but they're also coming from the U.S. Um, they groom them, and it's uh, some of the stories about the the level of drug taking mm-hmm. in Syria are phenomenal. I mean, they're basically high on drugs most of the time. As there's been an explosion in one particular one called Captagon. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so there's a lot of drug taking going on, and of course, uh, they're constantly trying to get girls to join them. Even three years ago. Um, there was some report about how I don't know how they. I, I think I think s- some people who get who find themselves in these situations they have let's say more noble ideals, mm-hmm. and then they go there and they're like disgusted about what they see. And anyway, one of them was a doctor, and they reported that just about every one of these jihadis in Syria and Iraq has is is riddled with STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, mm-hmm. because. They are just going at it like crazy. Um, if that sounds a bit odd, well, uh, you've got to think, what else would be luring teenagers mm-hmm. there? But this strong appeal to escape, I, I don't think it's idealism. They're not looking for an Islamic world. They're being groomed carefully by people who are, in large part, sexual predators, mm-hmm. first and foremost. And of course, they're also doing all, all kinds of the base things in Syria and Iraq. But... Um, uh, there's a recent uh, article in RT. Um, it says some some British comedian who, who was born a Muslim. Uh, she's she's a very simple theory for what's attracting them, yeah. and she says it's exactly this. It's basically sex. If she says if some hot hairy Muslim Brad Pitt had written to me at 15 and sent me pictures asking me to join him. It might have seemed like an exciting way out. She means an exciting way out of a boring, trite life with not many prospects in a European city for a lot of these people because they're generally from the lower Lower economic social status, you know. But it would have been nothing to do with religion, she says, hinting that the same motivation lies behind young young Muslim girls' aspiration to swap their cozy homes for the perilous life of a terrorist spouse. Um, <laughs> well, girls and visions. <laughs> yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, Neil. You know, when you asked that question, I was thinking about all of the women who have written to you know these uh, serial killers like Ted Bundy exactly. and Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, and how you know for any sane person, it's like, what what the hell are you doing? Uh, but but there has to be you know even separate from. Uh, intelligence agency grooming, some kind of uh, pathological there attraction or arousal. Yeah. Okay, well, here, I've got it. <laughs> so, this is from Phonerology. Um, first quote, people exist everywhere in the world with, with specifically susceptible deviant personalities. Even a faraway pathocracy evokes a resonating response in them, working on their underlying feeling that there is a place for people like us there. 
uncritical, frustrated, and abused people also exist everywhere, and they can be reached by appropriately elaborated propaganda. That's the first quote. So we've got two kind of elements in there. First, there's the people that see what's going on with ISIS, like from all over the world, and they say, hey, you know, that sounds like, that sounds like a great idea. I mean, I can have as much sex as I want, I can kill people, I can torture people, and that's where I want to be. So there's just the kind of totally lowest level of humanity who just enjoy all this kind of, um, these kind of like vacations into filth that see, that, that hear the call and answer the call, because that's, the, that's a place where they can get away with it. So you've just got the, the pathological, the, like the totally pathological minority who, who just simply see, okay, well, that's where I can do it. And then you've got that, that other little group that he included in there, uncritical, frustrated, and abused people. Now, because there are a lot of people, um, like probably um, some of those people that, that you made reference to who, who would, would have gone over there like young women if, they'd, if they hear about some you know, hot Brad Pitt jihadi wanting them over there. Um, or even, you know, people, young Muslim, whether practicing or not, youths in, in Europe who just don't like their lives, and they may hear the news, they may hear what's going on, they may think it's propaganda, but they may also have someone in their life, might be a, an intelligence or, you know, local police kind of um, groomer or handler, or, uh, or an imam, a local imam, who then, like, tells them the reality about what's going on, and, oh, well, you know, this, we need you over there. It would be great if you did. There's this whole grooming process that, um, that comes from the religious angle. And there, so there are reports about, about young guys or women, young women, going over to Syria and then kind of having the, uh, being totally disillusioned by what they see because they thought Islamic State was something, and they get there and it's something completely different. Now, of course, it's not like... It's not, that's not necessarily to say that these people go over there thinking that it's going to be this like heavenly um, like utopia on earth. They probably have some idea of what's really involved. These aren't like totally upstanding citizens necessarily, but even then they're the, seeing what's actually going on there. They themselves are repulsed by it. So there's, there's people trying to escape something that um that may have some idea that they're going to find some kind of fulfillment but they're just not you know they're y young kids they're they're stupid they're not they don't think these things through they don't actually know about what's going on i mean think just think about when you know we were all teenagers or teenagers we knew who you see them obviously making like a totally bad choice and they just think it's going to be great and they obviously haven't thought about it really at all and there's really nothing you can say to them they do it they you know they might regret it later but it happens and mm -hmm. just continuing on from that um so he says whether directly or indirectly uh that is by means of deviant agents this call of pathocracy once appropriately decked out reaches a significantly wider circle of people including both individuals with various psychological deviations Again, and those who are frustrated, deprived of the, of, of the opportunity to earn an education and to make use of their talents, physically or morally injured, or simply primitive. The scope of the response of this call may vary in proportion, but nowhere will it represent the majority. So we see that, of course. Nowhere does the response to, to something like ISIS reach the majority. It's just a, it's a, minor, like a tiny minority of people in these various nations that are going over there who are responding to this kind of call. And those would be the type of people that, that Lobachevsky laid out there. Mm. Now, but, but this quote, it's in a section 
of the book called Artificially Infected Pathocracy and Psychological Warfare. So this is something like you in in this whole like framework. This is something where there is a a kind of, a kind of massive um, pathocracy in power somewhere in the world with that is in control that is ruling a nation or several nations, and then their plans to basically take over other nations or to do with them what they want. And so this is the the means by which they they do it. So that's the first one that he mentions. It's just this this natural like call that they put out in their in their statements in the news that they release in the just the stuff that people can tell about what's going on now this is so the way i see daesh is kind of like it's a it's a pathocratic call by proxy because mm -hmm. because for other reasons like we know that that daesh must have their support from from um foreign powers and the us being the biggest one and yet they they but they need recruits for what they're doing because it's so over the top that they can't get any local support. So they amp up the the, the propaganda and the, their like the the massive PR machine that Daesh has with their with their beheading videos and all that. And so naturally, of course, well, it serves two purposes because you're going to have the people that are that are repulsed and that are then afraid, and you can instill in them the the fear of terrorism to get them to go along with your plans. But on the other hand, you get all the sadists out there. They just love it and, and are like, well, that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I didn't know they could get away with that. Well, now I, now I know they can and I want to join up. And so you've got that, but that's a, a tiny minority, which again, most people don't take into account is that that will only ever reach a tiny percentage of the population relatively. Mm -hmm. Well, it, you know, yeah. the, there, there seems, you know, this question that, that Neil's posing is interesting because, you know, there's, there's the, different dynamics going on in, uh, say, you know, a, a country like, you know, Iraq, Syria, and in, in the Middle East, and, you know, why a, a young person would go and, and, you know, join up with ISIS and, and versus, you know, somebody who's outside of, um, outside of that, and, you know, in, in a European country, in the United States, and why they would go, you know, the, the motivations are, likely going to be you know very different you know they're they're completely different atmospheres um you know a a, a person who grows up in in war you know some personality types will very likely be broken uh from you know from trying to live through that experience versus you know a a european or you know uh, a western uh person who's who's lived you know this uh very comfortable life where you know they, they they don't see and aren't um exposed to the realities of of war and so you know i i think um this social degradation that that's happened in the west you know may have also uh played a part in um you know the, these these people who do choose to go, to go over um mm -hmm. you know and, and that you know there is something very warped in our society that that has uh you know when when you look at young people's culture you know it it's very much based on shock value and it's so separate from reality you know i, I don't think that they can really even comprehend uh well, what war really is and you know what's actually occurring like it's so far removed there's there's a couple of things that I think are are relevant to to that idea, and I think you know what you're saying 
um, what you said, Harrison, about there being people kind of pathologically drawn or whatever to a pathocracy as ISIS might have, you know, might be seen to a certain extent. But I think there's, um, there's a big part of it as well is, uh, well, two things. One of them is that <clears throat> there, I think there are a lot of, um, Muslims in Western European countries who are, to a certain extent, fairly religious. Doesn't mean they're radicals or anything like that, they're just religious. And in Islam, for those kinds of people, um, the decadence, effectively, of that they see in, in Western society, of and to a certain extent, or to a large extent, I agree with them, yeah. <laughs> that young people in Western society are completely aimless and themselves have been, you know, ponderized and, and, and you know, they, they, they have very little real sense of a conscience or, or morality and they're completely hedonistic and, uh, and engage in all sorts of just um, complete dissociative kind of activities that are in no way spiritual. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's anti-spiritual effectively, uh, modern Western culture and <clears throat> values that are presented to young people. And so that's one thing that would alienate some Muslims from Western society and justifiably so if they're seeking some kind of a more wholesome society. Uh, um, the other thing is that over the past 15 plus years, if you're a Muslim, uh, first or second generation Muslim, for example, which many of them are in, in, in Western Europe, and you're from, you know, Syrian, Iraqi, uh, Afghani, North African, Libyan, uh, you know, extraction or Palestinian extraction, then you are very correctly going to feel uh, seriously aggrieved um, and identified with the the struggles of your effectively your people from those Middle Eastern Middle Eastern countries that have been invaded. Uh, and occupied over the past 10 or 15 years and prior to that have been abused by Western powers for the, you know, for the last hundred years. So I mean, there's very much, uh, I could very much understand how any Muslim from those countries who is living in Western Europe would feel like, feel a call effectively to go and fight against the kind of crusaders in the Middle East type of thing, you know, and I'm sure before ISIS came on the scene, there, are, there were people from Western Europe who went to uh, for example, to Iraq during the Iraq invasion or Afghanistan, Afghanistan or who went even went back to Palestine to to engage in some way in the in the struggle for for freedom and, and that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's the, the West has it's a really monstrous setup that they've done here, where they that, that they've created, where they've um, where for decades they have abused. Um, you know, people in the Middle East and, and, and invaded and occupied and, you know, unduly influenced and uh, directed the course of, of the Middle East in a negative way. And any Muslims in Western Europe who, who, who are aware of that, and probably there are quite, quite many, will, you know, will f- feel aggrieved at that. And uh, 
then so so they they create this situation where and this gets back to the beginning of the show of the idea of radicalization what causes it well if you go and occupy a country and abuse people uh, well you're going to radicalize those people against you you know but that's justified ra- radicalization if you want to call it that it's justified anger and if and people under the UN conventions uh UN um human rights uh what is the article no, that's NATO Article 5. One of the articles of the UN Convention on Human Rights basically uh, stipulates the right of uh, any people to to resistance, including armed resistance against occupation. Um, so this is a right, a human right, effectively, for people to to uh, uh, fight against, if necessary, with weapons against their oppressors, you know. So um, <clears throat> so they go ahead and create the, this generation of people who are justifiably aggrieved at the abuses of the Western powers in the Middle East, and then they demonize them as terrorists and carry out acts in their name that stop them from having any legitimacy, at least in the eyes of the West, because they carry out uh, acts in their name that they don't effectively, um, you know, brutal and unreasonable uh, acts in their name against innocent civilians, and then, and, and in that way, um, negatively uh, uh, present present the the otherwise justified uh, grievance in a in an unjustified way. Um, well, I'm glad I, you brought that up, Joe, because um, you know one of the like towards the top of the show, Harrison brought up the question. You know, how did we get here with these perceptions of radical Islam? And one of the events that uh, loomed very large in in my understanding of it was um, the takeover of Iran and of Ayatollah Khomeini in uh, 1979 and them taking uh, American hostages in the embassy there. And um, this was really big news. Uh, there was a lot of, um, <clears throat> a lot of, uh, for obvious reasons in the West, uh, negative perceptions created about uh, Iran. And uh, it was only later that it came out um and by later, I mean much later. It's only in recent years that I came to understand that the exiled leader, the Shah, was basically a tool of the West for for decades. Mm-hmm. And um, and so uh, Khomeini's uh, group there, however radical, however um, uh, violent, and and uh, and coming out with all this rhetoric about the West, seemed to be. Uh, a reaction to um, Western oppression, um, mm-hmm. and you know when when Neil was talking a little earlier about the book by Curtis, uh, you know, and how basically the mullahs had this little, you know, the joke was that they had this little um, this little stamp on their chins under their beards that said "Made in Britain or England." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it it was interesting. To me, to think that uh, at some point these same guys um, had come out and and uh, and kind of maybe they weren't the same guys, but this religious movement came out and and rejected utterly uh, this this grip uh, held by the West, and so mm-hmm. ever since then Iran has been demonized and and vilified, and uh, but so few in the West realize i think what that's a product of um and i I don't know if there were any other details in the book neil that uh that kind of flesh Mm -hmm. out uh that 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 whole event or not 
Well, it, there are actually. This is where there's the twist is. You see, the Shah, as what often happens when they install a guy, the Shah was starting to go in the wrong direction. He was starting to actually become an Iranian nationalist, and they didn't like it. So actually Khomeini was done with the full approval. Khomeini was an exile in Paris, so he was shipped in from Paris, you see. So it's an interesting turn of events. You've got this sudden explosion of the image for the Western audience of radical Islam up in your face. You can't avoid it. And stuff being done to Americans right when Ronald Reagan and Maggie Thatcher and the British Anglo-Americans were shifting hard to the right. This happens at the same time. It's an instant confluence of events. Um, so the, the, the kind of, there's, there's a hidden hand, if you like, behind that event as well. Mm-hmm. Now, in the end, so it, it's, it's not to say then, oh, that Iran is Islamic State, uh, the, the earlier version, um, it, it was, it was, you know, was a completely Western creature. Of course not. It, it's, it's developed and evolved and, and regained independence since then. But, um, uh, <clears throat> I think my, my most simple point would be, would be just that what I said that they didn't seem, they didn't seem to mind having, they prefer to have a visible radical Islamic state in charge of Iran than an, an independent one run by someone like Mossadegh, a secular state, an Iranian national independent state. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, just what you were saying there, Alan, made me think of, uh, you know, as a general rule or as a general outline of what, what they've done is the Western powers, the UK and the US, <clears throat> gone into the Middle East, colonized it, occupied it and abused the people uh, and created, a, a, you know, a lot of antagonism towards the West. Then back in the UK, uh, British intelligence uh, is a kind of grooming and funding and encouraging uh, groups from that, say, one particular country in the Middle East to um, to go over there and to uh, address the the injustices that the British themselves have caused. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're sent over there to, uh, with funding from the British, to address the, co- the the problems that the British have caused. And then when they do that, uh, they're kind of largely controlled, and their certain actions are carried out in their name, that is then used by the British to continue or to further colonize and control the Middle East, which is you exactly know, what's going on with ISIS. This is the way these people think, you know what I mean? That this is, yeah, we can do this. This will work, you know? Let's, let's, let's abuse that country and get some people from that country and tell them we're going to help them to deal with the abuses by, and send them back over there. And when they go back over there and with our help deal with these abuses, we'll make them do it in such a way that we can use that to continue to abuse them. So we're saying <laughs> that, that, that Khomeini <laughs> himself was something of a tool. Yeah, mm-hmm. to a certain extent. But was yeah. was one dishonorable mention that that hasn't been given here and, and needs to be given, and it's Israel. You know, um, I'd like to beat up on Israel for a little bit, uh, just for a few minutes at least. Um, Israel obviously uh, stands out as a shining example of what we've just been talking about, where uh, you have a country who horribly abuses the local population and then uh, uses. Um, the reaction of those people to being abused to further abuse them, to try and justify further abuse. Uh, 
because look at those people reacting to my abuse. How dare they? I'm going to abuse them some more. Doesn't everybody agree with me? Yes. And of course, that's a completely untenable and irrational position to take. And we've seen it in the past number of years when Israel has gone on its, on its, um, on its periodic, uh, murder spree in, in, in Gaza. Um, just to kind of let off some steam, you know, kill some Palestinians. They, um, the, what they said in their last, uh, operation, uh, pillar of bullshit, uh, or whatever it was. Pillar of defense. Pillar of horseshit. <laughs> so they, pillar of lies and nonsense. They, um, they came up with this term, telegenically dead. Yes. Palestinians. I wrote a little article about it. And this is a, a good example of the extremes people who adopt this policy, this totally irrational and untenable policy, an argument, the, the extremes they have to go to, uh, where it just gets, <laughs> it just gets absolutely absurd, you know, where they're making the claim that, and this, and the Israeli government, and then, yeah, he made this claim, he said that the Palestinian resistance wants us to kill them mm -hmm. so that they can then use the dead bodies of Palestinians to make us look bad. That's yeah. what he said. Can you imagine someone doing that, going in and killing someone and then saying, he, he wanted me to do that. You see, he just, he provoked me into killing him so that he could use his picture of him dead to make me look bad. And that really pisses me off. So I'm going to kill some more. Yeah. Oh, but then you see, and you see, see they're doing it again. again. They're doing it again. They're pissing me off and making me kill them. But then they use what I did by killing them. To make me look bad, that makes me kill them again. And where's this going to end? Somebody has to stop the madness. Yeah. Uh, and I, the only thing I can think of is that if we kill them all, and then they'll be happy. Well, that's the argument the Israelis give. And that's how ridiculous yeah. it, it is when you try to justify something that is fundamentally immoral and wrong and unjustified, and you, you have to go to these extremes to try and to try and justify yourself to the world. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous, you know. Um, but of course, that's something that, in general, the whole Israeli-Palestinian situation is a perfect training example of using uh, the the justified grievances of our people uh, to demonize them further. Is it fair to say, in summary, that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been projected onto the entire world via 9-11? Explain. Well, as Netanyahu said, within hours of the Twin Towers coming down, this is very good for Israel. Leaving aside the suggestion, there is some anecdotal evidence, at least, of Israeli foreknowledge of what was going to happen that day. <clears throat> but if... Where's the beeper? If we had... Well, let's, let's do it this way. The, in the Israeli media, in the Israeli um, discourse in the 1990s, going back to the first intifada in 1989, they already had something called the war on terror. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that logically the war on terror then goes from Israel to the United States and then to the whole world. Yeah. In terms of, let's look at it in terms of ISIS. In terms of what ISIS is, which is this organization, this bunch of mercenaries that are paid and funded by... Um, the West to make Muslims in the Middle East look bad so that the West can continue to invade and occupy and control the Middle East. 
well, um, Israel uh, created the template for that effect- effectively. Mm. And that may give you some insight maybe into who is also behind ISIS. Mm-hmm. Because basically in the 1980s, faced with a fundamentally and objectively uh, unjustified and immoral position of Israel uh, stealing land from another people and saying, this is our land and you get out and you're going to be second-class citizens and if you complain, we're going to kill you. Uh, Israel had to do something about that because the whole world was like, "Uh, Israel, you know, it's not really rocket science here. Uh, You're in the wrong. You don't really have that moral high ground. And the whole kind of God give us this land wasn't really carrying much water. You know, it wasn't flying. It wasn't a really convincing argument, let's say. So they had to come up with something better to convince the world that they were justified in stealing uh, Palestinian land and killing Palestinians if they complained about it. So what they did was they said, I know, let's make the Palestinians look worse than we are. How do we do that? Well, we've already pissed them off seriously and there's a kind of hotbed of kind of resistance and uh, anger there so we can use that. So let's make the Palestinians look like a bunch of crazy, mad, radical Muslim nut jobs who just hate us for no reason other than we're, than we're Jews and are they're, they're the actual, the, the totally irrational uh, ones with a completely unjustified position. We've got to get them to do stuff to make them look worse than us. So what they did was they basically started a campaign of going around and um, carrying out so-called uh, suicide bombing mm-hmm. attacks. Uh, and I kind of described this somewhere else in some article where I basically said, um, if you just think about that, if, if you assume, and it's a reasonable assumption that this is this was the Israeli policy, we've got to make the Palestinians look worse than us, uh, then it's very, very easy. It probably took a bunch of uh, Shin Bet or Mossad agents about, you know, 20 seconds to come up with the way to do it, which was, um, let's make them kill, indiscriminately kill Israeli citizens. Yeah. Uh, Well, how do you do that? Well, it's very easy. You have complete control over the time, at the time, complete control over Gaza and much of the West Bank. You have thousands of Palestinian prisoners in your jails. They're basically... You know, they're there to be to be manipulated in, in whatever way you want. And you just get one of them to walk into a falafel, walk up to a falafel stand or into a cafe in Tel Aviv because you've told them to go there. You've let, let them out of prison and say, listen, you've got to go to this falafel stand to meet with who, blah, 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 whatever story. And as soon as he walks in there with CCT camera rolling, as soon as he walks in, uh, you push a button that detonates the bomb that you planted the day before. Mm-hmm. Boom, instant suicide bomber. You can do that as many times as you want. You can do it in a bus, you can do it in a beach cafe, you can do it in a hotel, you can do it in a supermarket, you know, wherever you want. And you will have repeated examples of Palestinian suicide bombers. Uh, mm-hmm. So that idea, somebody hit on that idea of the suicide bomber, because suicide bomber is very important because it's, it's totally irrational from a fighting strategist point of view. You don't go and kill yourself. You've got a limited number of people to engage in an armed resistance. You don't just sacrifice them uh, to kill, particularly to kill civilians, because you know you know that's just going to make you know it's not gonna it's not gonna put pressure really on anybody, and it's gonna just give your enemy, the Israelis, cannon uh, or fodder to, uh, to 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 
to kill and, and bomb and take more of your land. So you don't do that as a strategy at all. Yeah. Um, so this, and, and also the idea of, it's totally irrational. So it's obviously not something that any rational person or rational fighting group would, would, would decide to do. But it also makes you look like you're just nuts because you're willing to blow yourself up. I mean, in all these suicide bombing things, the guy was on the, on the bus, you know, the guy was in the cafe. Mm-hmm. If your bomb is wired to go off and you've got a button, I mean, if you, if you can make a suicide vest or something like that, that the guy has to push a button and blow himself up, you can make a bomb in a backpack where he has to push a button to blow it up. It doesn't, he doesn't have to blow up with it. If you can, if he can get himself into a, into a, a cafe with a backpack, he can also drop the backpack and walk out. Ten seconds later, the bomb can blow up. Why would you kill yourself? Well, because they're crazy, not so, not so radical Muslims, mm. and and that's and everybody sees that in the West and says, "Yeah, those Palestinians are totally crazy." You know, they're just mad. You know, and, and therefore favor swings towards Israel. Israel justifies its, its its formally or you know untenable, unjustified, immoral position. That's what they came up with. That's what they did repeatedly, and that served. But long before ISIS, long before the invasion of Iraq, Muslims had been tarnished as crazy radical nutjobs by that policy of Israel against the Palestinians. So they were on first. Well, they didn't invent this. The invent British what? invented this in Ireland and in Cyprus and in Yemen. No. They were doing... Okay, the, the addition, the additional twist is to make it a suicide bomber. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But suicide bomber is very all, important. All the rest of the strategy, though... Well, of course, yeah. Well, the, the, the idea of carrying out a, 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 an act of a bombing or a, a violent act and blaming it on your enemy, the idea of a false flag is, is very old. But what's important is the idea of the suicide bomber. And because it's one thing it's one thing it's one thing for a for a, an armed resistance group to go in and uh, and carry an attack against an occupier and, and well it's you're not gonna necessarily demonize them for that. They, I mean you can try your best and you can be successful, but ultimately when it's looked at from a historical perspective, they were justified. But it's the element of being willing to blow yourself up, yeah, to sacrifice your own life that caused that is is the extra ingredient that can that really can swing it in your favor that these people are crazy not not jobs who have no no concern for their own lives you know it doesn't it, it it's hard for people to, back home to understand you know even even if they try it's hard for them to understand. Uh, or imagine themselves in that situation because natural humans uh, instinct for self survival or self uh, you know uh, self uh, protection whatever is going to mean that you're not going to find a lot of people who will willingly go and blow themselves up I mean especially yeah. when there's an opportunity to do it without blowing yourself up and live to fight another day hello yeah. you know so that adds in the irrational aspect to it which is the radical aspect crazy radical Muslim aspect and it was the Israelis who 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 established that back in the 1980s uh, for the Palestinians and then that that was the first seed of what we have today which is this western perception of crazy radical Muslims right and Joe uh, it sounds like you're you're touching on uh, like the the motive behind you know these kind of uh, false flag bombings uh, it's is it just for you know control over the people of the area or is it more towards just utterly dehumanizing the population so for extermination type purposes, which is really what you see going on in, in Israel with, with Palestine. 
Well, yeah, that's that's what we've been saying, and that's that's the whole point is is to demonize the enemy, I and mean, that's that's not new either. You know, the British did it with so many people that they colonized around the world during their their imperial days. You know, they the first order of business as soon as they decided they wanted a colony in, in a separate country, or when when uh, people in that country uh, rose up in, in some kind of um, resistance or some kind of freedom movement, the first order of business for the British government and uh, British media was to uh, catapult massive amounts of propaganda that um, convinced the local population back home that these people were bloodthirsty savages uh, who were just killing the white women in, in Kenya or mm-hmm. anywhere else and, and paint pictures of them, have, have uh, that Punch magazine draw pictures of different nationalities and, you know, basically like an ape or a donkey or some kind of an animal. Uh, yeah, it's to demonize them so that the people back home don't care when they hear reports that British British troops or American troops slaughtered a bunch of ex people in some foreign country. We don't care because we've already already been conditioned to believe to, to see them as subhuman as animals, so we don't have to feel any compassion. And it also uh, just provides justification for your continued um, uh, colonization and involvement and uh, occupation of of that country. To sort out those crazy savages, you know, to civilize those crazy savages. So yeah, that's that's it's a very basic thing, you know. You demonize your enemy, you make them look lesser in the eyes of the people that you want support from, uh, so that you can continue to, uh, you know, control them and keep them down and whatever. It's it's not really psychologically, it's quite prosaic. Yeah, and that's that's one of the effects that ISIS is having in the Middle East because they're. They're living up to the stereotype, and they, as an example, they can then be used to further demonize any uh, any group, you know, in other countries, uh, like pa- even Palestinians. Mm-hmm. So they serve their purpose, in, you know, even there. When just uh, earlier, Joe was talking about how the U.S. can be exposed to supporting Al Qaeda, and it doesn't it isn't detrimental whatsoever to their cause because basically they can take off their mask and everyone is just cowered over in fear. And I think that, you know, the same applies to Israel right now. I mean, maybe even more so because, I mean, on the official level, Israeli statesmen have come out and said, we would like to see ISIS in charge of Syria. We want ISIS in charge of Syria. They, you know, we have the same uh, cause, the same moral values. And Netanyahu can come up and say, you know, the Palestinians uh, initiated the Holocaust or the the Grand Mufti was uh, responsible for the Holocaust. And, you know, all of these things, they can just basically come out right out and dance around and say, hey, look, we're serial killing maniacs, and what are you going to do about it? And, you mm-hmm. know, it's it's just, it, it is pretty, it's, like yeah. you said, it's gotten to a point where they have, the people are so inhibited and so fearful. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's like the that pathocracy has, has them so dependent on it that there's, they've just, they've just bent over, just rolled over. Mm-hmm. It's um, whatever about Israel's right to exist. That's a bit of a. It's kind of like a bit of a straw man argument to a certain extent, or a straw man discussion, uh, if you want. That, uh, uh, but Israel, what can be said uh, with lots and lots of confidence, is that Israel's. Uh, the justification for Israel 
for its existence requires that it be surrounded perpetually by being Muslim hordes or Muslim hordes being for Jewish blood. Mm-hmm. Israel absolutely needs that perception uh, perception on an ongoing basis uh, because otherwise uh, if there was peace in the Middle East then uh, everyone would have to sit down and discuss rationally without the threat of without any threat to Israel's existence or without the threat of radical Muslim terrorism quote unquote uh, everyone would have to sit down and discuss rationally and calmly the rights and wrongs of Israel and Palestine and on the day that that happens, Israel loses. Israel has no leg to stand on. Israel's position is exposed to the entire world as untenable, unjustified, and immoral. Um, so, so, so is there a need to for ISIS? That, yeah, to offset that that day and, and make sure they never have to have that discussion, uh, they, they ensure that the one thing, the only thing we all discuss is the Muslim terror threat to Israel and, you know, freedom-loving peoples of the world. And if you need that threat to be there all the time, well then, uh, it's it's not for, from a normal human perception or normal human kind of inclination or um, behavior point of view, you're not going to have that threat. It's not possible to have that threat all the time, especially if you're in a dominant position, which Israel obviously is, and the West obviously is in the Middle East. You can't have uh, a, a dire threat to you when you're in a dominant position all the time. I mean, it, it, it's it's kind of contradictory. So uh, if you need that threat to be there all the time, then ultimately you have to create it and keep it alive and stoke it and manufacture it. And, and that's what they do. And I think... It just, yeah. well, I th- and I think ahead, that's... Just, go ahead. I'm done. Okay. Well, I think that right there kind of is a, a good summation of, of what we've been talking about and kind of the ultimate reason why we see this um, this radical Islam threat and how it's presented in the media and this whole idea of radicalization and that really nails you know the prime prime reason why it exists in the first place and why it's so propagated but um, I think we're going to end the show there, continue this discussion another time we, we ran a bit over today but I, I hope everyone enjoyed it and it's not getting too sleepy so thanks to thanks to all our co-hosts here, thanks to Joe and Neil for, for joining us yeah, thanks thanks for no problem. thank you very much and uh, Great we'll be, to be here. <laughs> we'll be tuning in, and we hope you all do too. To uh, behind the headlines tomorrow at mm-hmm. twelve noon Eastern time. And yeah, thanks everyone for the, su- for the Sunday sermon. For the Sunday, the weekly Sunday sermon <laughs> from yes. brother brothers Joe and Neil. <laughs> yes, so, yeah. We'll look, Testify. <laughs> we'll look forward to it. So Hallelujah. Again. Get a witness. All right. Thanks everyone. Don't Play be too music. Don't be too radical. <laughs> All right. All right. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. That means it's over. See you guys. Bye. Bye-bye.